Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. I don't see the media clamoring to talk to the people who transitioned when they were younger and ruined their lives because of it and now wish that they could go back to their original gender with the body they originally had. And it's not because those people don't exist because I've met them myself. They're really not that hard to find. For everyone that you have like this, you're going to have just as many on the other side that regret doing so. Especially since 80 to 95% of all children that are trans when they're kids grow out of it by the time they reach young adulthood if they aren't transitioned physically. Listen to Tactics with Caleb Colquitt, Thursday nights at 7 on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, and TacticsRadio.com. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. America is divided as ever. How do you talk to your friends and neighbors about politics and religion in a way that doesn't devolve into yelling and pointless arguments? Luckily, Caleb Colquitt hosts the Tactics Podcast on Thursdays at 7 p.m. to teach you how to have thoughtful conversations about the hot-button issues of the day. As a national award-winning debater and gospel minister, Caleb knows how to discuss sensitive topics in a meaningful way. So subscribe to Tactics Radio on YouTube or like Tactics on Facebook so you can catch every episode and elevate your conversations today. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. We have a very special guest with us this evening, Congressman Mo Brooks. We're serious in America about liberty, about freedom, about our country's destiny being controlled by the will of American voters. And it's that Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms that enables us to defend our republic and defend our rights should the central government ever become dictatorial. Listen to Tactics with Caleb Colquitt, Thursday nights at 7 on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, and TacticsRadio.com. With great power comes great responsibility. Compromise where you can. Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right, even if the whole world is telling you to move, it is your duty to plant yourself like a tree. Look them in the eye and say, no, you move. Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on Tactics with host Caleb Colquitt. The Situation Room goes live now on News Radio 1440. Good evening, everybody, and welcome into Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Well, this has been an incredibly busy week for everybody. It's been a busy week for me, especially. I've had several very long seminar classes for graduate school, which is the reason that I wasn't able to get the show on on Thursday like I normally do. But we're doing the best that we can here, so thank you for being patient with us, for bearing with us, and most importantly, thank you for making us a part of your busy day. Now, we've got a ton of stories to get to. We've got the ending of the Alabama legislative session. We've got all kinds of national stories to talk about, from Chris Cuomo to Dr. Anthony Fauci. I mean, th there is no shortage of subjects this week. This could have been an eight-hour show, <laughs> honestly, if I, if I had the time to do the prep and, and to go that long, and I don't. But my point is, we could have done a lot of news. But I want to start with the most important news. The Whataburger has opened. That's right. The Whataburger at East Chase. This is the, the most important thing of this week. It has opened and I have been there. It is fantastic. I actually, it was just dumb luck. I didn't plan this, but I had 
racked up racked up five points or visits or however you count that with the Whataburger app. So I got a free milkshake when I went there for my first visit at the Whataburger in East Chase. And you guys know how insanely stoked I am about this. I freaking love Whataburger. I really, really hope it does well. Uh, now, granted, it, it's a new place, and so the line is kind of wrapped around the building, and it's probably going to be for a while, and so I hate that, but I've been in the dining room. It's the biggest Whataburger dining room I've personally ever been in, and I've been to several Whataburgers. I wouldn't say that I've been to a lot, just because there's not that many around here, but of all of the ones that I've been to in the state of Alabama and a few in, in a couple other states like Louisiana and Texas, it is the biggest dining room that I've ever been in. It's very nice. The staff seems very friendly. Uh, they got a hoot out of me because I walked in wearing my Whataburger shirt. Yes, I know. It's, I have a fast food shirt. That's just how big a fan I am. And another thing that's really cool, too, is, and, and this has a tie-in with the radio, they are also a new sponsor of the Montgomery Biscuits. You can even see Monty, the Biscuits mascot. Well, I don't know. Is Monty technically the mascot or is he the icon? I think Big Mo might be the mascot. I mean, I know he is one of the mascots. I don't know how you count that. Either way, doesn't really matter. Monty is actually up on their wall. They do the double play Whataburger inning. So if the Biscuits get a double play, all of this, the fans in a certain section get a free double Whataburger, which is pretty awesome. And so I really love to see that the, the restaurant is coming in. And of course, I'm biased. I love Whataburger. I've been a fan for a long time. But I really love that they're coming into the community and wanting to really establish themselves as part of the community. And I, I love that. I love the fact that they're wanting to be part of the local baseball team. I love the fact that they kind of made their opening a big event for the community and uh, the way that they're handling it. And, and it seems like they're trying to do it right. They have a really big dining area. They have a big drive through that can accommodate a lot of cars, which goodness knows they needed it this week. The line was wrapped around almost back to... Uh, uh, what, what is that plate? I think it's a Wendy's, which is the one right next to Whataburger. And so... I like to see that, and, and this is, just goes beyond my love for Whataburger. This is a good idea for any company to do to establish themselves in a community like this and really make themselves feel like they are a part of the environment and the culture of that community. And if they kind of engross themselves in that, that's going to endear people to want to support their business. I mean, obviously, the, the most important thing is you make a good product, and Whataburger does. But it's also important that the people in the community have that little that little extra factor that they want to support you beyond just you giving them a good product. And I think that Whataburger is at least starting off on the right foot. I don't know if they'll maintain that. I mean, it, it could happen that they go the same way of the Whataburger that used to be at East Chase and they, they wind up just not being able to make it there. I don't know. But I hope that that doesn't happen and it seems like if nothing else, they're off to a very good start. Now, on to the actual political news of the day, which I know is the reason that a lot of you guys are here, and that's understandable. I did do an interview with Becky Gerritsen, which I actually recorded on Tuesday because I had grad school. Becky's very busy. She had a, she had a deal that she had to go to an enterprise on Tuesday, and so I say that. I think actually Monday is the day that, yeah, Monday was the night that we recorded this. And so this interview is a little dated. Now, about 95% of the material in it is fantastic. And it's mostly because of Becky, not because of me. But <laughs> the point is, uh, the material is good. And of course, the talking points that we give are good. But there are a few things that would not make sense 
if you know the recent news of some of the things that passed and failed. And so just keep in mind, there are a couple things that we talk about that were kind of in limbo or that hadn't passed or hadn't got any attention yet that have now. And so I'm going to go ahead and front load this and give you the information now on some of the big policy items that have changed their status since Becky and I did our interview. So uh, first of all, we talk a lot about the minor transition ban. Um, and unfortunately, we talked about there was a possibility in that interview of maybe it getting in special session. It doesn't look like that's going to happen, both that and the gambling bill, which we didn't mention ad nauseum, but we did talk about a little bit. Both of those seems to be dead on the vine, and it's not as though they got voted down. It's just that they basically ran out the clock on them. And so the bill that would ban transitioning, and, and by the way, I don't mean social transitioning because that would, of course, be allowed under this bill. When you're talking about the child actually being surgically or chemically altered, altering their body because they're a trans individual, they're not allowed to do that before the age of 19 under this particular law. But unfortunately, it looks like that is not going to come to fruition because it seems as though the legislators in the state of Alabama have just timed that one out. And so they just they didn't see protecting children from you know, permanently scarring and mangling their bodies is something that was important enough to get through. It, somehow we always seem to get taxes and, you know, new spending and all that junk through, but so, this one was not important enough to garner the attention of the people in Alabama's House and Senate, which is really sad. Uh, the gambling bill, which I'm glad that that one died on the vine, not really because I was against it in principle, more so that I thought that this version of the gambling bill was really bad because it basically instituted a monopoly that would be sanctioned and guarded by the state, and that's not good. And so the gambling cartels would have run it, which is the opposite of a free market. And being a free market individual, I didn't like this gambling bill. So I'm glad that that one died, but it is sad that the uh, transition ban on minors, uh, it's not going to seemingly see the light of day, unfortunately. The emergency powers reform that one failed in a very strange way. And so this one has a bit of a weird backstory, but suffice it to say that the emergency powers bill, which I believe it was Senator Arthur Orr that put this one forward, it would have essentially curtailed the governor's powers. And that one failed in a very strange way. So it didn't just like die the way that the past two bills that we were talking about where they got timed out. This one actually got voted down. Uh, and it seems as though it got voted down, not on the actual vote, but before it went to a vote, and so they couldn't get cloture on it. I don't fully understand exactly what happened, and that's partially because if you read the procedural record of how that one wound up failing, it's goofy. I don't really understand exactly how all that happened, but suffice it to say that... Wait, I said um, I said Senator Orr, didn't I? No, this, this would actually be Tom Watley of the Auburn area. He was the one that proposed that bill. And so Tom Watley's bill, apparently he was pushing it and he was actually threatening a filibuster, but then it was a very bizarre thing that they basically went ahead and decided they were going to vote on cloture, which is we're going to vote to close debate on it and vote. Um, but that wound up failing and it never made it to the floor or something like that. It, it's very, very bizarre. You'd have to get somebody a lot smarter than me, honestly, to explain how all of that happens. But the bottom line of it for the the important thing for you to take away from it is that the legislature had an opportunity 
to reform Governor Kay Ivey. And by Governor Kay Ivey, I don't just mean specifically her, but any future governors that could abuse the power to, in some way, roll back the governor's ability to just declare an unlimited state of emergency. That's essentially all this bill did. There are a few little details in there, but the main thing was it was trying to get rid of the governor's ability to just straight up say, we're in a state of emergency in perpetuity and I have emergency powers from now until the end of time. This bill would have set some time limits on that to where the governor could keep it in a state of emergency for a while, but after a certain amount of time, the legislature would have to come back, they would have to vote on it, and then they could continue the state of emergency if the legislature gave approval of it, which was a smart idea because what it does is it says the governor can't just hang on to emergency powers for no reason. Now, Governor Kay Ivey is not the best governor, but she's not terrible. Well, most days she's not terrible. And so because of that, I'm less worried about Governor Ivey and what she did with the emergency powers, even though she did pass a completely unconstitutional mask mandate. But beyond that, she really didn't abuse her power all that much in comparison to other governors. I realize that's setting a super low bar, but I'm just saying comparatively, she didn't abuse her emergency powers nearly as much as other governors did. What happens on the day where we have a governor that is significantly more power-hungry than Kay Ivey and just says, you know what, we're in a state of emergency from now until the end of time, and I don't even have to define state of emergency, we're just in there, and I can do whatever I want. That's not the way that this should work. But what's sad is the legislature didn't just fail it. It apparently had virtually no support because it couldn't even really make it to an official vote. And that is really sad that our representatives who constantly paint themselves as uber-right conservatives that are very much against government and government power are perfectly fine, seemingly, with letting one person in the state of Alabama, the executive of our state, just run things basically as long as they want to with a ridiculous level of emergency power and not have to check with the legislature at all. I find that incredibly disturbing, but it failed in spectacular fashion, unfortunately. The civil asset forfeiture reform, that one passed. To be honest, I was caught up in everything else, and so I haven't been able to dig deep into this particular reform bill so I'm sorry, I just saw that this morning and, and I saw that the reform had gone through. Now, it has not been signed by the governor, and so it's still up to Governor Ivey whether or not she wants to sign that into law or not. But it did pass, and civil asset forfeiture does need to be done away with completely. This was a reform bill. It doesn't do away with it, but I think that it should be done away with completely. You can't confiscate something without going through due process and, and actually, you know, but anyway... This bill was designed to curtail that in some way. I have not been able to look at the fine details, but it looks like that one did pass and that one's up to Governor Ivey. What I'll do is I'll just kind of wait and see if Governor Ivey signs it, and if so, I'll do a little more explanation on that one. The Born Alive bill did pass. Now, that one's important because in this interview I do with Becky that we're about to watch, we actually talk about it not passing, and that's because it hadn't at the time. And so it looked like the clock was going to run out on that one, but the Born Alive bill has passed. It probably wasn't something that was happening frequently in Alabama, but if it does save the life of any child and it 
you know, does exactly what we're supposed to do in the state of Alabama, which is it recognizes the individual rights of life, liberty, and property, primarily life in this particular case, of all citizens of the state of Alabama. Now, this should be a no-brainer. This is something that even Senator Doug Jones approved of. I mean, uber-liberal Doug Jones even said, yeah, once they're born, they have the rights just like everybody else. I don't give Doug Jones credit for much. And there's a reason that I call him Abortion Jones. He's not exactly great on the issue of life. But even with that incredibly low bar for Doug Jones, even he cleared it. And so it is a good thing to see that that one passed. I would bet my bottom dollar that Kay Ivey signs that one into law. I just, that one's a no-brainer. It, it doesn't seem to have a lot of political blowback, which I know is something that Governor Ivey is concerned with. But I can't see this one generating nearly enough to justify her vetoing it. And so I could very much see Governor Ivey passing this one. I would be very surprised if she doesn't sign it into law. So that is a very, very good thing for the state of Alabama. And then finally, the medical marijuana bill has been passed and signed. And so that one's not even waiting for the governor's signature. That one was signed the other day. And so because of that, medical marijuana, as it is laid out in that particular bill, now I had problems with the bill, but as it's laid out in that particular bill, that is the one that passed and is signed. And so there is a, uh, there is a medical marijuana distribution that will be able to take place under the guidance of a doctor that has been certified to issue that. So that being said, those are just some of the updates. So keep those in mind when you're watching this interview because it is a couple of days old, but it is a fantastic interview. And when we're talking about the issues and the, the rationale behind them, that stuff is, is going to be relevant regardless of when you're watching it. So without further ado, we're going to take a quick break and we will be back in just a second on Tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. If you like the program, be sure to like and subscribe. That helps us fight off the dark cyber overlords at YouTube, so certainly do that if this is something that you are interested in. Now, my next guest is somebody who has been on the show quite frequently. In fact, uh, it's a shame that we weren't able to continue that because of my own uh, issues with grad school and not being able to do the show as often as I'd like, but uh, back in the days of yore, we actually used to have a weekly segment on this show where she would come in and give us a rundown of what is going on in the legislature. So it is time once again to go to our guest, Becky Gerritsen of Eagle Forum, Alabama. Thank you for being on the program with us again. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you back. And, and one thing that I wanted to uh, ask you about, you know, the, the way that I was going to format this is I hate to squeeze what has now been months of deliberation into basically one segment, but that, that's kind of the Herculean task that we find ourselves in. So... Uh, real quick before we dive into sort of our overview of what has been happening in the Alabama halls of Congress over the past session, uh, what was today like? What, what all happened recently? Well, today was day 30, the last day of the session, and they are at recess right now. So they got through, there were 18 bills, I believe, on the special calendar, special order calendar. Mm -hmm. They are about halfway through. The first bill was to ban vaccine passports, and that took three and a half hours to get through that bill. So it's a long day. It's good. They will go probably until midnight tonight 
and it's been very frustrating. One of the bills that would have helped us not have to have mandatory vaccines was killed. Um, so anyway, we'll get into that later, but it has been a crazy day. And let me just say, yep. summing up this session has been extremely frustrating for the public, but also for us who work up there. And I am a registered lobbyist in my position as executive director for Eagle Forum. Mm -hmm. And we have had such limited access to our representative. It's been very, very frustrating. Their phones are so full, their voicemails, you can't leave a voicemail mm -hmm. because those are full. They admit that they get so many emails, they, they can't read them all. And then they don't wander the halls because the public is not allowed to be on the floors where their offices are. And so it has just been, if it's hard for a lobbyist um, who's not a well, the well-funded lobbyists are having no problem being up there every day. <laughs> But That's how it always is, us, isn't it? You know, who are grassroots, um, really fighting for conservative causes, we are having a much more difficult time. And it's just, it just makes me mad for the public that if we're having a hard time, we kind of know how things work up there. It's especially maddening. And we've had so many very important bills that have come through this year and that needed a lot of public input. So I really hope that next year is nothing like this year. Yeah, and that's the thing that I think has been frustrating for a lot of people, too. Now, obviously, in this specific context that you're talking about, uh, it's true, but I think it's been true on the broader sense in a lot of ways, too, that things that are just sort of relegated as COVID safety are actually just very convenient veils to do things that they've always wanted to do. And I, I kind of think that that's probably what you're running into up there at the, the house. Yes, and it was really apparent in the very beginning of the session because so many legislators, what I would talk to on the phone or via text, or they were loving the session because they weren't having to deal with any of the public. And they, this, is the, this is the best year we've had so far. And all of us are thinking, this is the worst year. I've worked with people who have, you know, for decades been working up there as lobbyists and as attorneys, you know, trying mm -hmm. to help with these bills. And they said, this is the worst year they have ever experienced. Well, you know, that being a congressman, that. that's that's pretty easy when you don't have to deal with the little peons out and, you know, out yes. and uh, slap out and with Tumpka. You don't even and... have to hear them on the, on the telephone because your voicemail is too full that you can just completely ignore them. Right, and unfortunately, I think that that's, again, kind of what they've, they've always wanted, and because of that, that they probably saw it in that light. But uh, just to, to kind of get into the overview that we wanted to talk about here, out of all the bills that you've dealt with this year, and I know that Eagle Forum Alabama does as much as they can, but they can't deal with every little issue that comes up, uh, of the bills that you specifically worked with, which ones are you most excited about that have now passed? I think one that passed today, well, there's a couple, but one that passed today that was very, very important was a ban on vaccine passports. Mm -hmm. This would allow the citizens to be able to move freely to buy and sell and, and go to different venues without having to prove that they've had a COVID vaccine. Mm -hmm. This was a bill that passed out of the Senate a, several weeks ago, and it was a great bill uh, the way it passed out of the Senate. It came down to the House Health Committee and higher education and the medical community got a hold of it. And they said, well, that's good for everybody else, but our employees and our students or the people that we want to serve, we're going to want to have, we want to be able to mandate that they have a vaccine. 
which went so far as to say, if you were a patient and you wanted to go to a hospital to have a procedure done, this bill would allow them to say, no, I'm sorry, you can't get your services done here until you get a COVID vaccine. And that is just not right. And there are many young nurses and doctors who aren't all about the vaccine, who are in childbearing years and mm-hmm. realize this is an experimental vaccine. They don't want to have to take it. So our big thing was to get those two amendments ripped off, get it back to the Senate version. That mostly happened today. However, higher ed does have an exemption that allows them to require, see, they pretty much already can require a vaccine record when the students come to school. Right, for things like tetanus and policies. It's not a law, but it's a policy. So this law today basically says you can continue to do that policy that you've been doing, but and you can't add any new vaccines to that. So that's good. And you couldn't um, require them to have to have a vaccine passport. Now, we'll see what they do. It's a policy they can make, so they may try to, to do that. But again, I think we have to really be vigilant with this and people who have kids going to school and going to college pay attention because these are childbearing years and right now it is against the federal law to mandate that these vaccines be given because they still are technically experimental mm-hmm. and that goes against the geneva not the geneva convention the um, nuremberg code so stand tall if you're a parent and whip out that nuremberg code if you need to you can go to americasfrontlinedoctors.com and you can see your rights as a parent and as a person that you cannot, your employer cannot mandate that. It's against the, the federal law, but people are being bullied. People don't know that. So I think that one is, is probably one of the best that passed so far. Now, we'll one, one thing I'd like you to explain on that just for the audience, um, this bill, does it specifically deal only with government entities? So it's dealing just with, uh, or, is, or is it broader? Does it affect it private broader. businesses? Yes. It is a very short bill. It's only about two pages long, but it mm-hmm. does also say that businesses cannot require their customers to show a vaccine passport when they come in. So they still may ask that question. They still may want to take your temperature. You know, they, those things they still may ask. They still may require you to wear a mask when you come into their store. But they are not allowed. It's against the law in Alabama for them to require proof or documentation that you've had a COVID vaccine. You know, and I was surprised that a bill like that would even be required because I would have thought automatically it would be not, you would not be able to do that because of HIPAA violations. But. Exactly. And that's a big question that a lot of people are having is, wait a minute, this they're not allowed to ask you these kind of questions. Right. So we'll see. I think there are going to be a lot of lawsuits that will be coming uh, in multiple states, and we'll, we'll see how this plays out. Yeah, and my natural instinct on that really is to say, look, if the business wants to require it, the business should be allowed to require it. But when we're talking about health, I do see where there's a, a little bit of a strain there because we already do have HIPAA laws in place. And if that's the case and they can't require you to show your medical records for anything else, I don't know why we would make this one specific carve out for this one specific vaccine. And so uh, I I do understand the rationale underneath that. Okay, so of the bills that that did pass, which ones are you most upset that wound up passing? Which one passed that you didn't want to pass? So glad you asked that question. (laughs) 
as you know, all of last year and this year, we had a bill that we helped write called the Vulnerable Child Compassion and Protection Act. Right. This was for gender-confused children who, at the age of eight and younger, I believe, in Alabama, at least age eight, they might even go younger, um, they are able to get onto puberty blockers with the purpose of trying to change their sex. Now, I want you to think about this. This is a third-grade person. Um, doctors are giving them puberty blockers, and then they go on to cross-sex hormones, which will then prepare them for sex reassignment surgeries. All our bill does is say if you are a healthy child and you are trying to change your sex, you have to wait until you're 19 to have this done. Because we are seeing all across the country and all across the world people who have made these decisions at a very young age or whose parents have made this decision for them at a very young age are realizing that, oh my gosh, I was just a kid. I didn't know what I was doing. I was caught up in a trend. Mm -hmm. I was caught up in YouTube and now I wish I wouldn't have done it. But forever, their lives will be dependent on prescription drugs. Their bodies are mangled and basically healthy body parts have been amputated. So this was very much a common sense bill. And last year we were making great progress, but COVID shut us down. So we got it passed in the Senate, but not in the House. This year, it passed in the Senate very early on, like 23 to four. It was a very good, I mean, it passed with flying colors. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, it was one of the first Senate bills that did pass. It was, it was early March, I believe, early right. March when it passed. So yeah, I think we were week four into it and we're at like week 13 now. So mm -hmm. the, the votes in the house were there, were ready. Um, this was a no brainer kind of bill. Yes, it would be controversial, the human rights campaign and several, the LGBT crowd, of course, they were pushing very hard against this bill. UAB runs the gender clinic. So of course they don't want to be shut down. Um, but what happened is last Friday, you know, well, the speaker had promised that he would get this on the, on the calendar. Well, last Thursday, day 29 of day, you know, there's 30 days in the session. It was the second to the last bill on the calendar. Well, they only got through one or two bills that day. Brand new calendar comes out for today and it's not on there. So our call was to the governor and to the speaker and we sent out emails to all of our members and said, please call the governor's office and call the speaker and ask them to get it on a second special order calendar today. So there is a slight possibility that it could come up tonight. We've talked to people on the rules committee and just begged them, please, these children, I, Caleb, it's so important to know, gender confused children, if they're allowed to go through natural puberty, by the time they are a young adult, 98% of them come out on the mm -hmm. other side just fine. Yep. But if you're going to give them all of these dangerous drugs that stop bone growth, that stop brain maturation, that have so much to do with their physical bodies, you've just, you've ruined them. You've sterilized them. And now they're in their early twenties. And so my heart, I just wanted to cry and I probably will have some crying time. We've worked so hard on this and this is a no brainer and this will save a lot of children. And I'm just very disappointed that this is a Republican run mm -hmm. state house. We have, we have a super majority yet. We couldn't get this bill passed. 
that's just wrong. They're moral cowards. I mean, there's no... Yeah. You've been a little gentler than I have, but they're moral cowards if they can't pass something like this. I mean, when you're looking at something where the average life expectancy of a transgender person is almost half what it is for a normal human being, and... It, you look at it, it's because of things like suicides and health issues that come with transitioning and health issues that come with puberty blocking. They have a higher risk of certain cancers. They have a higher risk of, of uh, blood clot issues, things like yeah. that. And, and with all of those things, and we know for a fact, based on all the data that we have, that if we just leave them alone until they're 18, 90% of them will never have to go through that in their life. I don't understand the rationale of anybody, even someone that is pro-transgender or pro-homosexual. I don't even understand why they would not support a bill like this. I know right. that they and don't, they, but I don't understand it. They can still socially transition. They can change their name. They can change their pronoun. We are not trying to stop them from presenting as the opposite sex. We are trying to stop the medical harms. Mm-hmm. that are being done and you know parents are being told these things are reversible oh you just push a pause button no you don't you push a pause button and then they it retards their growth while their peers move on which makes them want to go to cross-sex hormones which really jacks up their bodies mm-hmm. and it, it's just awful and we know too many people that have gone through this and that are saying please stop countries now i'm so excited to see sweden and england and Many European countries now. Right, not exactly bastions of conservatism either. Exactly, but they are realizing the damage that is being done to these children, and they're saying, no, we are not going to allow this to happen in our country. And so we're thinking, here we are in Alabama. You think that our people would wise up and realize this is just not, this doesn't make any sense. This is not healthy for these children. So that's. Uh, we're all just very, very upset. Yeah, and that's understandable. I mean, we could spend literally an entire episode, and you and I have both done interviews with uh, you know different people that have spoken on this. I very much encourage you to go to Eagle Forum Alabama's YouTube channel. Go to my YouTube channel. You can see, for example, our, our interview with Dr. Lappert, uh, who's fantastic. I could spend all day on this, but we've got to move on. I'll just okay. le- leave you with this. Um, it seems to me that the people in the House of Representatives in the state of Alabama care more about what the press will say about them than they do about the lives of these kids. And I know that's harsh, but just based on their actions, that's the only thing that I can take from it. Actions do speak louder than words. You are so right. So on the rest of the session, what is a bill that failed that you would have liked to have uh, seen passed that that actually got railroaded? There's so many. Uh, well, Common Core, um, repealing Common Core, that would have been great. Of course, that bill has never moved. We did have one in the House this year, and it actually got a hearing for the first time in about nine years that, that it's been presented. But, of course, it went nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, the it, Born Alive bill. So if a child is born during an abortion, an attempted abortion, There was a very simple bill that would say this child must be given all the care a regular born child would be given to try to save their life. And again, this is a Republican supermajority. It passed the Senate. I'm sorry, it passed the House with uh, pretty good flying colors Mm -hmm. and was stuck in the Senate. So I don't, you know, I didn't see the special order calendar today. So don't quote me on that. There is a possibility it, it may come up today, but I did not hear that it was on for today and this is the last day right well that is truly unfortunate i mean 
And again, this is kind of going back to the same sentiment that on the transgender bill, I do not understand why even Democrats that are pro-abortion are against this, because this is a baby that is already been born. He's already out of the womb. And I, I just don't understand the rationale of why you would oppose something like that. I mean, I, I thought that, you know, Senator Doug Jones, who you and I are not political allies with, even he supported the Born Alive bill when it came up in the Senate. And and so I just, I do not understand that rationale at all. Um, one of the, Caleb, go ahead. you were asking about which ones we wish would have passed. There was one that would ban the Confucius Institutes on college campuses. Mm-hmm. And this is a, a Chinese-backed group or um, program, actually, that we give a lot of money to. We spent millions of dollars building a facility on Troy University. And again, mm-hmm. Confucius Institutes are being banned across the country because we are seeing that it's a spy network in some places. They come in, they're able to infiltrate, they're able to get research. Um, through, through the universities. I'm not saying that that's exactly what's happening at Troy, but we do know that um, it is run by the Communist Party in China, and we would have loved to see that go away. Again, it got a, a little hearing in the House Education Committee, but it didn't go anywhere. It's very sad. Do you think the rationale on that one could have been, and, and I'm just you know playing devil's advocate here, do you think maybe some of our legislatures in the state of Alabama were just kind of thinking, Okay, I understand the the reason that people are cautious about this, but isn't this more like a national security issue? Should we really be dealing with this? Do you think maybe there was some hesitancy on their part because of that? Well, I think that a lot of the legislators have a loyalty to higher ed. Higher ed has a very big, they're very strong lobbying group there, and Mm. I do think that they really pay attention. Of course, sports is such a big deal. In Alabama, and so what really? We we have a big sports thing here in Alabama. Yeah. <laughs> they get a lot of credit, and so I I think that it's hard to if the college wants something or doesn't want something, they usually win. Mm. So that's a tough one. I I could see that. I mean, I have often joked that Nick Saban is the most powerful man in the state of Alabama, and he is. There's if Governor Ivy wants something and Nick Saban wants something, Nick Saban's going to win that fight. But yeah, anyway. Right. I know it's sad, but it's true. So um, are, are there any bills that pass that shouldn't have? Oh, I'm sure there are hundreds, uh, but I don't know what they all are. There is, let's see, I just kind of picked the one. Here's one that I really like that passed, the biological sports bill. So this is- Ah, uh, yeah, I did see that. Well, and this would allow, so transgender girls, which is really a boy, um, competing with girls, which this- really hurts women's sports. It takes away their scholarships and whatnot. I mean, we've all heard about this on the national news. And that did pass. And it actually passed with good margins in both the House and Senate. So I'm glad to see that. I'm glad that it was really a woman's rights issue. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm happy to see that that came along. Okay, gambling, that one was teetering for a long time. I'm very happy that it was killed for this session. It sure took a lot of time, which made it hard for us to get the other bills that we wanted passed. But I do think the governor will call back a special session. Probably. I'm sure we can all read the writing on the wall that something will be coming soon. Yeah, I don't know about you, Becky. You can, you can tell me if you get the same sentiment or not. 
but I kind of feel like every year it just creeps a little bit closer to the finish line. And I, I just got to feel like even if it doesn't wind up getting through this year, that it's going to get through next year. We, we, ha we have had a gambling bill every year for the past like four or five years. And every single time we have it, it feels like it just gets a little bit closer to that finish line. Yeah. It definitely does get closer. And I, I'm suspect of the polling. They keep saying that, you know, everybody wants to have a vote. Well, a lot of people don't understand that when they give their, when they, because it's a constitutional amendment, mm -hmm. the public would have to vote on it. Right. But as soon as they do vote on it, and if they voted yes, then the gambling cartels, which as so far as it's been set up in these bills, there's a small group of people who will be making all of the decisions and you won't have a vote anymore. Mm -hmm. You're just basically voting, yes, I'm ready for you to take over and run gambling in our state. So I hope we can get that message out that voting for a lottery is going to open the doors to so much more. And evil forums, really our biggest argument, well, we have several on gambling. One of them is that it hurts the poor. It is not a good way to fund government. You only get about 1% of your budget that is mm -hmm. helped by gambling. But the, the ills of the society are so much more than that. But the increase in sex trafficking is huge in casinos uh, once you open up a casino. And we already have a serious one. I was about to say, Alabama already has a really huge problem with that. We're already, a, uh, especially because of I-65 and 85 and sort of the intersection there, we're already a crossroads for that. We, we certainly are. So we uh, will continue to fight the gambling bill. Um, another one that was really huge that we fought, and of course, you may feel differently about this being a cancer patient. Um, right. We're against uh, dispensary marijuana. It's not medical marijuana. It is THC is THC. It's just uh, recreational versus medical. Mm -hmm. The only difference is the tax structure. So it is still THC. It did pass, and it was signed today by the governor. I We just really need to watch this one very closely. We know in every other state what follows is recreational, and a lot of society ills come from this. But... Based on the studies that we have been looking at, especially for pain, um, even for ALS, the, the marijuana, dispensary marijuana does not do the trick. It's pharmaceutical marijuana, THC, that does better. So we do have, and I don't know if you ever took Durabinol or Marinol when you were going. I did it. I was actually very lucky. My side effects from chemo were very mild. Oh, well, thank God for Amen. that. Amen. Do have and we do have some great um, THC medications for epilepsy, and we just would really like to see more studies funded. Mm -hmm. And I'm really nervous about where this is going to go. Well, you know, it's interesting because with both of the bills that you just mentioned, I can very easily see myself supporting either one of them just on libertarian uh, right. ideals. Uh, you should be able to spend your money the way you want to, even if it's on something dumb like gambling. And you should be able to put in your body more or less what you want to, especially if it's it's done under the the um, uh, under the institution of a prescription given by a medical doctor. My problem is with both of these bills, they're not set up right, and that's the problem that I have with them. I could see myself supporting a gambling bill as long as it was done correctly, but all this does is set up a government mandated, well, not a government mandated, but certainly a government sanctioned and enforced monopoly. On, yeah. with the gambling cartels. And then on the second side of that, with the uh, the mer medical marijuana, it seems that this is more aimed at getting recreational marijuana in the door than it is at actually helping people that have these medical issues. Right, and you know what's something that's so amazing about this bill is if you're a medical doctor, 
you can just take a four-hour class and pay $500, and boom, you can prescribe marijuana. I want you to think of all the doctors when they have a patient who has pain problems or you know whatever they want to take it for. They're probably on a lot of prescription drugs already. Yeah, and, and if there's... Know. If there's a solution that is not a prescription drug that's actually natural light marijuana, I'm all for it. But, but we do have to figure out a way to do it correctly. And you're going to have all kinds of issues coming with multiple drugs in a person's system. And now you're putting in medical marijuana, or not medical marijuana, but dispensary marijuana. Mm -hmm. And for a doctor who just went through a four-hour class, I mean, it's a Schedule One drug. It's highly, um, it makes a lot of... What am I trying to say? Your brain. It, it really affects your brain more than just any old regular drug. So this is going to be really interesting, Caleb. Yeah, and I'm not sure exactly where it's going to go. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. I Again, my instinct is to support it. And that's the, the issue that I'm running up against because I don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good, but at the same sure. time... I, I don't see this as actually doing what it's it's stated that it's trying to accomplish. And, and that's, like I said, kind of the same issue I have with the gambling bill is that the effect of the bill would be the opposite of the intention of the bill. Right. Wouldn't it be great to just set up a study and you start trying some of these things and then you can collect the research at the same time and maybe we can, if it does work well and we know how to control it, we can fast track a drug like they did with Epidiolex. So... I just think that would be a smarter way to go. Yeah, I, I, I have to agree. Um, now, granted, I, I'm no doctor, but that, that seems to be a, a more, just based on the very limited amount of research I've done on it, that does seem to be a, a better solution. So I wanted to ask you about this. Were there any bills that you feel like, and I think we kind of already touched on this, uh, are there any bills that you feel got timed out or are going to be pocket vetoed by the governor that you would like to see get through that, that you're worried won't? So this vaccine passport bill that passed mm. today, this would ban us from having to have passports in case you're just starting to watch this. Um, except, well, basically, that's it's going to protect you from having to have documentation. Mm. But the medical community and the colleges, mostly the medical community, they got stripped of what they wanted in the bill. So we understand that they are going to try to get the governor to veto this bill. But for the rest of us, we want the protection of not having to have a vaccine passport, especially if we need to go to the doctor and have a procedure done, but we're maybe of childbearing years, or maybe we just don't want to have the vaccine for whatever reason. Uh, you, maybe you've already had COVID. You don't need the vaccine. Right. And every study that's been done on it so far, now granted, it's a very new virus, so these studies are going to be preliminary, but every study we've done on it show, so far has shown that natural immunity is actually superior to the vaccine immunity. And it can actually be dangerous to you to take the vaccine if you've already had COVID. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm worried that this might get vetoed by the governor. It is SB 267. So this week, I hope people will kind of pay attention. Um, I know this comes out on Thursday. So maybe even on Friday, call the governor's office and mm -hmm. ask her to support and sign SB 267 into law. Okay. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask, and I, I know... I know the Eagle Forum, this is not on your list of things that you looked at, but I just wanted to see if you had any inside information on this. Uh, the effort by the legislature to put forth legislation that curtails Governor Ivey's power or any oh. future governor's power when it comes to emergency situations, 
Uh, what has been done on that so far? Because everything that I've seen, it talks about them kind of drawing it up and it never really making it past the, the sort of planning stage. I'm so glad you brought that up because it, it, it was on my list and it, I kind of forgot about it. Okay, today we have a bill. It's called SB 97. Tom Wat Watley in the Senate actually mm -hmm. wrote this bill. Uh, Mike Holmes carried it in the House. It passed the Senate. Actually, in that bill was a section that would uh, not allow us to have mandatory vaccines. So we liked a lot of part, lot of this bill. Some of the parts we didn't like, but overall, we like. It would have been put us in a better place. Mm -hmm. It failed on the floor right before we started filming today. So uh. this bill would have allowed the legislature to kind of rein back in the powers of the governor being able to declare a state of emergency. Mm -hmm. And again, this failed today, so we are in the same place that we've been. She can continue as the governor to make these decisions without the oversight of the legislature. You know, I'm, I'm somewhat disappointed, and then there's part of me that's not, because I know that if it wound up on Governor Ivey's desk, she was going to veto it automatically, like wouldn't give it a second thought anyway. But at the same time, I'm almost like, but if even the Congress, if nothing else, out of sure jealousy to guard against its own power, couldn't yeah. step in and say, we need to limit the governor's ability to do this in the state of emergency, that blows my mind that even they were just like, no, we don't need to do that. We need to let the governor just be in charge. And I think a lot of it goes to, this is something that, I don't want to spend way too much time on this, but this goes back all the way to the founding of our country, the reason that we have uh, multiple houses in Congress, the reason that we have multiple branches of government was ultimately because the founders cleverly believed that what would happen is that each branch would not let the other branch get too powerful because they would jealously guard their own power and their own authority, uh, right. sort of relying on people to be terrible, not people to be good, which has worked out better in our history. But the irony is now, I don't think the founders would have ever foreseen this, now what is more important in American politics is not actually doing things, but instead staying out of the spotlight and avoiding responsibility and accountability. And if you're going to do that, the best way to do that is to veto things like this and, and actually have less power in your own office. And then when something terrible happens, like, oh, well, we can't do anything about that. That was the governor's call. And yeah. I, do you think maybe that's the reason that they, they voted against it? I... Some, one of the legislators got up to the microphone and said, so if we pass this bill and 120 days goes by and the governor, let's say for some reason we can't meet back here, there's some kind of lockdown and we can't meet back here, then we're going to lose our federal funding. And I think that, really? was, I think that was the clincher because, and then, yeah, yep. There was a procedural move that happened right after that that I have never seen before. Um, anyway, yeah, I, the bill was heading along just fine until he said that, and then they decided to go back and take a vote that they'd already done. A procedural move was that was done I had never seen before is actually what killed the bill. Hmm. Well, all right then. I, I don't really understand why the legislator would want to do that. Uh... At the same, they don't want to lose federal funding. That I, I don't know. It's it, it's weird because I'm in the position of supposed to being able to understand things, and I find myself understanding less and less of why people do what they do. Uh, we're right living there. in very odd times. 
Yes, I'm right there with you. But ultimately, I, I think that the... I said this at the time when Governor Ivey instituted, even back before we knew how dangerous this thing was, I was like, look, the, gov the governor just doesn't have the power to do that. Like, there is a correct way to do that in the sense that she could call an emergency session and get the legislature involved and have them pass a mask mandate or a shutdown, mm -hmm. but the governor cannot unilaterally do that. And the, the fact that there's no penalty or no uh, no means that anybody seems to have that is willing to take against the governor for doing that, that just astounds me. And, and the thing is, it's not because I have some kind of deep disdain for Governor Ivey. Um, sure. what, what happens if we had a governor that actually had malicious intent and had that same power? That's what I'm concerned about. Right. And that may happen. Uh, did you hear anything on the constitutional carry bill? The last I knew about the constitutional carry bill was it was it passed the House but was waiting in the Senate, mm -hmm. and I don't know if it made the calendar today. I don't think that it did because I remember when it passed in the House, I didn't see it ever come up in the Senate. Maybe it did and escaped my notice, but it. I think one of the reasons that that one specifically irks me is because it's kind of like the gambling bill in the sense that it seems to come up every year. The difference is, I kind of feel like the gambling bill always gets a little bit closer to getting passed, whereas the constitutional carry bill has basically been in limbo since its inception. And it's baffling to me because I understand the sheriffs are worried about losing money, and that's the reason that they're against it. But the thing is, I believe, and, and tell me if you think I'm wrong on this, that they probably wouldn't see a difference in revenue anyway. And the reason for that is because of reciprocity. Because I, as a gun owner who has a concealed carry permit, I'm going to keep buying my permit even if I'm not required because I want to be able to have a permit when I go to Kentucky and Tennessee and Florida. And, and yeah. so th that's a protection for me. So I don't even think it would make a difference as far as revenue goes. I don't either. I don't either. And that was brought up in the hearings. And I, as a concealed carry person myself, right. I, I agree. I, I would continue to buy a, a permit as well. Yeah, so I, I don't I don't really understand that one, and I am frustrated by the fact that even in Ruby Red, Alabama, it seems like, you know, what we've been talking about since the very beginning, it seems like there are just an awful lot of bills that you don't understand how they got through and how they just kind of whizzed through the, the House and the Senate quickly without a whole lot of pushback, even in the conservative House and the Senate. And then you're looking at things that should be no-brainers in a Republican-controlled state like constitutional carry and protecting children that are born alive and botched abortions, and somehow those just never make it to the governor's desk, and I just don't understand it. I don't either, and and that's why I just, I have this big sore on my head from hitting it against the wall <laughs> these last couple of weeks, especially, because when time starts ticking down, yeah, you know, you have to work even harder, and I, I don't understand. Very frustrating. Well, you know, there's some... There are a few really great representatives in the, the House and the Senate, but there's an awful lot of them that are just there for the title, and I think that that's the reason that we're, we're, we, get, we reap what we sow. We send those people and continue to send those people back to Montgomery, and we're getting the results from not doing our homework. And I hate to say that, but I, th I think ultimately it comes down to a lack of information from the people. Yeah, and that's one thing Eagle Forum really wants to do and has been trying to do is get citizens involved in this process. So we have small groups that have started all across the state and we are working to have small groups in every legislative district so that when we have a representative going off the rails, we have people there to 
call and that are their constituents and mm -hmm. to maybe help them be more accountable. So critical I, race theory is one of the things we'll be working on this summer, okay. as well as puberty is not a disease. These are presentations that we'll be doing across the state. Okay, now here, here's a big question. And this is going to be a little bit, uh, I'm going to be blindsiding you with this one, but I'm, I'm sure you'll do fine on it. I know. If there was one procedural thing that you could change about how the House and Senate is run, what would it be? Well, one thing I would like, this is not really procedural, but what I would like to see done is allow the citizens to come in the House, to come into the State House. That's a novel idea. The Capitol <laughs> opened on March 15th. Mm -hmm. You can, public can go into the Capitol right across the street at the State House. No, public can't come in. It's our house, the people's house, and we weren't allowed in. That is wrong. That mm -hmm. is so wrong. So I would love to see that change. No, I absolutely agree. Is there anything else that I didn't think of that you might want to talk about? Something else you might want to let the audience know? Well, let me just, we will have a wrap up, a final, every week I give a legislative update during the session. Mm -hmm. And this week we'll be putting out the final kind of how it ended, how our bills went, who our favorite legislators were. We're going to put that out later this week. So Eagle Forum, I'm sorry, alabamaeagle.org is where you can find our website. On the homepage, it says join our newsletter. If you click on that, you'll get on our email list. And if you do it soon, then you'll be able to see um, what's happening this week and kind of what our wrap-up was. Also, on our website, alabamaeagle.org, you will find an alerts tab. And there you can go and you can see all the previous emails. So if you want to find out more about VCAP or... Uh, any of the other bills, you can look through those uh, updates and find out what you missed. All right. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for being on the program, Becky. We're always glad to uh, see you back on. Hopefully next year when things are less up in the air, we'll be able to have you on weekly like we used to. That sounds great. You keep up with your studies and Thank I'm you. forward to being on again, even in the summer. Maybe we can talk some critical race theory. Oh, yeah. I'd be absolutely uh, pleased as bunch to do that because that is a cancer that is infecting our schools. And I, you know, a lot of people, I think, in Alabama, well-intended, but they think, oh, well, I don't have to worry about that because I live in Alabama. No, it's here, too. It is here. All right. We'll, want to do well, thank you, Becky. I appreciate you being generous with your time. You bet. Thank you. All right. Have a good one. That is, of course, Becky Gerritsen of Eagle Forum, Alabama. It is always a pleasure to have her on. So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back after this on Tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwood. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. Hey, where are you going? Champ? Slugger? Hey, cowboy. Where are you going? Where are you going? I'm going out! Hey everybody, it's Caleb here, and I am driving back from Whataburger because Montgomery has one of those now. I could not be more stoked. I am absolutely thrilled about this. Mmm, so good. And, uh, you know, you're welcome, Montgomery. I, I put a lot of work and effort into it. I'm the one that really brought Whataburger to Montgomery. I think that everybody should be thanking me for that because I, I launched a two-year campaign to bring it to the capital city. I was very enthusiastic about it because I love Whataburger so much, I hate that it used to be in East Chase and left, and now it's back in East Chase again. Now, 
all joking aside, I think we all know that my campaign probably didn't have very much to do, if anything, with the decision to bring Whataburger to Montgomery. But it actually made me think of something that I was reading last night in the Gospel of Matthew. And in that, Jesus talks about what it really means. He's not presenting a new law. He's actually talking about an old law of Moses. To love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Now, the thing is, I really love Whataburger, but that really all comes from the heart, or more appropriately, the belly. I do have a passion for it, but that's just because I like the food. I mean, it doesn't really go any deeper than that. I just kind of love the burger. But did you know that in the original Hebrew, that love means to give? And so the truth is, you can't actually love a hamburger if you're using the Hebrew language. Because what love means is to give. And the hamburger can give to you in a sense because you're eating it and it provides nourishment, but you can't give to the hamburger. The hamburger is an inanimate object. And so I think that sometimes we as English speakers, our use of the word love sometimes doesn't exactly convey what the scripture means when it says love, because it means it in the very specific context of, of something that is done for somebody else. And that's not really something that you get from the English version of the word. And we understand that in the Greek, the highest form of love, because there's five different terms used for love in Greek, the highest one is agape, which is the highest godlike form of love. It's the perfected version of love where you are willing to sacrifice for the other person. And so in both of these instances, there's a much broader understanding of what it means to love something or someone. I say that I love Whataburger, but if we're talking about it in the biblical sense, if we're talking about it in the language of Hebrew or Greek, I can't love Whataburger. That's not how love works because it conveys something much stronger and deeper than that. And I was thinking when I, I thought about those three aspects of what it means to love God, where Jesus says we're supposed to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. Frankly, I think I'm pretty good at loving God with my mind. I'm not saying that I've perfected it, and I don't think any human being can love God with the finite mind that, that doesn't understand every aspect of everything like God does, because he's all-knowing. But I think it's important that Jesus points all these three things out. He's not just making a point about loving God with the whole self, even though that message is there too. He's saying that these things specifically contribute to loving God in a certain way. And what he means by that is, think about it. To love God with all of your heart means to have a passion for him. Kind of the love that I was talking about with, with Whataburger, now in, in a much more serious way. But that you should love God in the way that you desire a person that you really like, or a person that you really like to be around. That there should be an excitement, there should be a desire to be in God's presence, to worship him, and to obey him. Somebody that only loves God with their heart, though, they're quickly going to be drawn into some kind of emotionalism, where they might love an aspect of God, but really they kind of mold God into the thing that they want. Because if you don't have the other two parts, it's very easy to make an idol of God and make God just like you. And so what happens is they, the people that love God with their heart, but just their heart, 
they say that they love God, but they really just kind of love the image of God, and they sort of make God into a lovable thing without accepting the aspects that might be more difficult to understand or you might need to use your soul to love. Then there's the aspect of the soul. People that only love God with their soul are quickly drawn into mysticism. They wind up just kind of chasing emotional highs and trying to constantly do new things because that's what makes them feel more spiritual. They're not actually chasing the real God, they're chasing the experience and the idea of God without actually getting into the other parts of it. And then this is the one that I have to worry about more than the other two. For somebody that only loves God with their mind, God becomes a thing to be understood or a subject to study. And that becomes a problem because they just look at God as a, a subject matter to master, like biology or astronomy or something like that. But God is not just a subject to master, he is a master to be subject to. And that's a very different thing. Loving God only with your mind just means that you know God academically, and that's just not enough. That's not what God actually called us to be. But see, when you love God the way Jesus instructs us, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, then God won't just be a religious experience. He won't just be a thing that you can have strong affection for, and he won't just be a topic of study to understand. You can have a personal relationship with him just the way Jesus did, and if we want to understand how to love God the way Jesus did, we don't need to look any further than his life. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement is not hate. Thank you so much for being back with us this evening for the program and got a lot to go over. That was a great interview with Becky that I really appreciate her uh, coming by and, and giving us her expertise from Eagle Forum, Alabama. But there is a lot going on. One of the biggest news stories of the week is that the Supreme Court of the United States has officially agreed to take on a case out of the state of Mississippi dealing with an abortion ban. Now, this particular abortion ban that Mississippi enacted would ban all abortions after 15 weeks. So it's not quite as strict as Alabama's abortion ban, which bans them outright. I mean, just completely bans all abortions unless there were special considerations, for example, rape or life of the mother, that kind of thing. Mississippi, a little bit different. So they do allow for abortions up to 15 weeks. And the reason that this is important is because generally, generally speaking, the viability argument has been the standard. So originally you had Roe versus Wade, which established it as a right. Then after that, you had Casey uh, versus Planned Parenthood. And in that case, what the Supreme Court essentially decided is that viability was the standard that you're going by. And so the 15-week the ban would actually ban a child's, uh, ban anybody from getting an abortion before vitality, because generally speaking, infants are not viable at 15 weeks. 20 weeks is about the earliest that we can keep them alive outside of the womb. And so because of that, that has kind of become the, the de facto standard. It's, it's not an official standard that the Supreme Court suggested. It's just 20 weeks seems to be about where viability lies. And so because of that, this bill does have the potential, 
it could potentially overturn Roe v. Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood. That could happen. Whether or not it will happen remains to be seen, but it, it does revolve around that case. And the thing is, though, you have to remember, as one of my law professors once said, the wheels of ju justice turn slowly. And that's probably the most true thing he said in his entire class. Learned a lot from him, but that was probably the main thing that he drove home that, that I tried to remember. That and the stuff that I learned about land rights. But that was the main one. That Just remember, no matter what issue it is, no matter what law we're talking about, the wheels of justice tend to turn slowly. And so this is probably not going to be something that they rule on until June. The way the Supreme Court typically functions is they may start hearing this case in October. So it's a long ways out, but they have had at least four justices that said, yeah, it's it's worth taking taking a look at. And so we don't, I don't know exactly which of those four justices it, it was. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it was Gorsuch, Alito, um, Amy Coney Barrett, and Thomas. I believe those are the four, which really should surprise nobody. I don't believe that Kavanaugh uh, would have been one of the ones that was in favor of that. I, I very much doubt John Roberts would. And that actually brings me up to where we can go with this. The The court is probably not going to rule on this until June. And the reason is because typically the court does its more boring cases or the ones that are less controversial earlier in the year. And they tend to save the ones that they're pretty certain are going to be kind of contentious until June. And so if I had to guess, and, and this is probably the biggest Supreme Court case that is going to be heard this year, maybe there could be one that's bigger. I don't know. You know, that's the way politics happens sometimes. Sometimes there's something over the horizon that you didn't foresee that's going to come up that would be much bigger. But I can't foresee, unless there is maybe another abortion case that would even have a, a closer tie to abortion and. Uh, the potential to overturn Roe v. Wade, maybe that could happen. I, I tend to see it as unlikely. But that's a possibility. But more than likely, what we're going to see is this case is going to be the one that they decide to basically make a ruling on, on abortion with, and they're probably going to hang it out to dry until most likely June, because this is probably going to be their biggest case of the year. In fact, I would not be at all surprised. If the high court decides to do this case last, it may be the last case of the the session that we hear out of them. I don't know, but it would not surprise me if that winds up being the case. So basically, the thing that you need to know about this law is there are three ways that this particular law could go. The first way is that it reaffirms Casey slash Roe, depending on how you look at it. It could affirm one or the other or both. Casey's really more the standard, more than Roe is now, but Roe's the one that everybody's familiar with. But if it reaffirms the viability standard that was set by Casey versus Planned Parenthood, then what's probably going to wind up happening is nothing. And it does look bad, and having another case, and the vote may have some effect on it, but as Justice Clarence Thomas said, court precedence really doesn't matter. And the reason is because whenever the court believes that a, or where the, I shouldn't say the court, whenever a justice, an individual justice, sees that a decision was wrongly decided, then they ignore court precedent. And whenever they believe that it is rightly decided, they just use court precedent as an excuse for why they believe what they believe. And he's absolutely right about that. 
typically speaking, the justices don't take into account whether or not a, a decision was actually reached by a former court. Now, they may hang their hat on that and say, well, I came to this decision because look at court precedent, but then they'll completely ignore court precedent in a case that they believe was decided incorrectly. And so really precedent doesn't mean anything. All it is is a veil to disguise the fact that you agreed with the previous court. And so because of that, I, I don't really see that being a big deal. You know, let, let's say, I don't think that this would happen, but let's say that we get a six to four decision that you have, or six to four, that would be 10 justices. I'm sorry. It's been a long day. Uh, let's let's say that we got a six to three decision. Now I do not see that happening, but let's say that we got a six to three decision uh, for upholding the viability standard as set forth by Casey. Could that happen? Yeah, but at the end of the day, would it do anything in the future? I actually argue no. And there's a lot of lawyer friends that I have that would say, well, that would be really bad because it would be a a six three decision that would set a precedent, and then it would be harder to no, it wouldn't. Because if you get a bunch of liberal justices in there that agree with abortion, then they're going to agree with it no matter what court precedent is. Then if you get people that actually look at the original intent of the law and understand individual rights, human rights, the, the right to life, primarily amongst all of those, even more important than liberty or property, then they're going to just look at those previous cases and say that was wrongly decided, just like Casey was wrongly decided. And so this really isn't going to make a difference. And so i that's the scenario that we're looking at first. The second scenario and the second way we could see this going, and I think that this one is possible, is that SCOTUS re basically reestablishes Casey's viability standard or upholds the Mississippi law on very narrow ground. So it either does something to systematically alter the standard that Casey set to a new standard, something either other than viability or an adjusted version of viability, or maybe it does technically uphold Mississippi's state law, but it does so on very shaky, very narrow legal ground. And we've seen that the court has a tendency to do this. They don't like to make big decisions. They tend to basically play around with the edges as opposed to going for a knockout punch, even when, you know, you look at the original decision of Roe, it was absolutely a knockout punch. It was a big sweeping change done by the court. The court tends to not like to do that. And those, you could look at exceptions, but generally speaking, they, they like to kind of tinker around the edges, especially with John Roberts as the chief justice. And so because of that, I could very easily see that being what happens. Um, for the viability standard to be drastically altered, uh, you'd need, here's the thing. The people that are in play right now are Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch. You'll notice that I did not list in that grouping Justice Roberts because Justice Roberts is going to side with the liberals. Every single thing we have seen from the pattern so far, like when you're looking at whether or not a baseball player is has a high likelihood of hitting a home run, you don't look at his lifetime stats. You look at his recent stats. And that's what I'm doing here with Justice Roberts. Over the past three or four years especially, Justice Roberts has sided with the liberal justices on every case that is even somewhat controversial. He's really been doing that for about five or six years now, really since the Obama care case. I can't think of any really big controversial case off the top of my head. Maybe there is one, and feel free to correct me on that in the comment section below. 
But as far as all of the big controversial cases that would make a big deal, he doesn't mind signing with the conservatives on the things where it doesn't really do much. But on something like this that could drastically change the landscape of legal scholarship in America, Justice Roberts tends to always side with the liberals. Or he might side with the conservatives, but he does so on very narrow ground. And that's another thing that we have to consider here, is that if he does, you know, let's say that we have a decision that we know for a fact is going to go against abortion, and Kavanaugh and Gorsuch join on with that opinion. Well, what Roberts might do is switch sides, because, you know, he's Roberts. Roberts might actually switch sides to give us a 9-3 opinion for upholding the Mississippi law, but he will weaken the opinion in doing so. Justice Roberts does this a lot. If you've read parts of, for example, his biography, there are records that straight up admit to this, that there are times where he was on one side of the argument and to make it less controversial, he jumped on the other side and wound up siding in a different way just to try to uphold the appearance of the court and to make the decision that they were making, which he previously disagreed with, make it less impactful. This is the way that Roberts operates. The guy's a politician. He's not a judge. And so I could very much see that happening, that even if it's something that would weaken Roe or Casey, but, but wouldn't go all the way, that Justice Roberts decides, I want to weaken it even a little bit more. Uh, or I, I, the opposite, actually. Uh, I want to make sure that this changes less, so I'm going to join the prevailing side so that I can water down the opinion. That could happen. In fact, I... If we do get a decision that goes in our favor, I would even say that that is likely to happen. Now, the likelihood of this scenario, because as I said, the previous scenario where just nothing changes, I'd give that like a 74, 75% chance of happening. It's high. I think that we're probably going to get no change. And this is just based on watching the court and what they've done recently. I could be wrong, but Kavanaugh and Gorsuch do scare me on this. And I like Gorsuch, and in a lot of ways, Gorsuch is a, a jurist after my own heart, but then there are some ways where he's the exact opposite of me. I, I, we've seen that we cannot rely on Gorsuch, for example, to be originalist in the Title IX case, where he essentially asserted, okay, well, yeah, that's not, and admitted in his opinion, well, that's not what the jurist actually meant originally, but regardless of what they meant, this is what, and so, you know, he played games with it, and it, it was just a really, really bad... Uh, oddly enough, Kavanaugh showed a ridiculous amount of restraint that I was not expecting from him in that one particular case. But anyway, for this to work out, we don't just need Gorsuch, and we don't just need Kavanaugh. We need them both. And frankly, on this, I think both of them are a coin toss. And so then you have to ask yourself, what are the odds of winning two coin tosses in a row? It's 25%. Not nothing, but not great. And so that's actually what I'm anticipating here. I think that the fact that we get something that actually weakens Roe v. Wade or the standard set up by Casey, there's like maybe a 25% chance of that. Now, granted, 25% is significantly better than the like 2% that we had with Kennedy. And so on that note, I would have to say that this is significantly more promising than we've had in a really long time. So that is something to be excited about. And then there's the third option, which is they just completely overturn Roe. I would love for this to happen. This is the result that I am pulling for. But to be perfectly blunt, 
I just don't think it's going to happen. There's maybe a 1% chance of that. So to recap, about a, I would say, this is just my odds, 74% chance nothing happens, 25% chance that they do something. And what that something is, I don't know. They might, they might reset the viability standard. They might tinker around and uphold the Mississippi law on, on very narrow grounds. And if they do, then Roberts is probably going to join the prevailing side and water it down. So it's going to do even less than it would if Justice Roberts were not there because he is a cancer on the Supreme Court. Uh, and I think will go down as one of the worst Supreme Court justices in history. But anyway, uh, that I could see happening. It's just not super likely. And then there's about a 1% chance that it just straight up overturns Roe. I think for this to happen, you would almost have to have Roberts, and not Roberts of late. I mean Roberts from like 10, 15 years ago. We'd have to go back in a time machine, get that Justice Roberts, and bring him back now. And then we might have a pretty decent shot at actually getting Roe overturned. But I don't see that happening. And the truth is we'd probably have to also bring back Scalia and kick off Kavanaugh. And even then, I'm still skeptical that Gorsuch would join. And so you, you can see how this is just a very narrow shot. I would love for this to happen. I would love for Roe to be overturned. And remember that if that happened, it wouldn't be like, okay, abortion is banned in all 50 states. No, it would go back to the states. It would be a state issue if they did that. I mean, could the court theoretically write a opinion that says, nope, abortion is banned in all 50 states, the unborn are, are people and they have a right to life. I guess it's possible, but I just, I can't see it happening. I, I really can't. And so we'll see how this turns out. They may try to reset the viability standard to something that's something of a, an objective thing like they tried to do with the viability, even though viability is a moving target. But I really have no idea. I, I could not, I could there are so many different ways that this thing could go within that, that second option that it wouldn't surprise me basically no matter what we do. But um, Justice Thomas is really the only jurist that is sitting on the high court right now that has publicly said Roe was incorrectly decided. And that just gives you sort of an idea of the shot that we've got at this. Now, do I believe that probably... Amy Coney Barrett and Samuel Alito agree with that. Yeah, they, they probably do, but they've not publicly said it. And so it just seems as though there is not much of an appetite on the court to overturn this abysmal law and, and end the worst practice in American history. And yes, I'm including slavery on that. It goes abortion and then slavery. It is unconscionable to me that this is something that continues to go on in our country. But I think that that leaves me with my advice to you Pray for the nation. Just pray that this works out, that we will end this practice, and pray for the jurists involved. I, I don't anticipate a lot of good here, but with God, all things are possible, and I do think prayer makes a difference. So continue to pray for our Supreme Court and our nation. That being said, we actually have a new story that sort of ties into this. And it involves CNN's Chris Cuomo, so let's go ahead and go to the Daily Dose of Stupid. Now you messed it up. <laughs> You're stupid. And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, we are indeed, like I said before the break, 
going to be talking about CNN's Chris Cuomo. So there's actually a couple stories, and we'll get to the second one in a second. But the first one, Chris has asserted that overturning Roe is racist. I, I don't understand it, but there's here's the thing. I've seen a lot of shows not actually covering the entire conversation and the build up to it. So, so we're going to just go by the go through this thing piece by pay, piece because it is a cornucopia of stupidity. And here on the Daily Dose of Stupid, we're trying to squeeze as much stupid into as small a space as possible. And so, let's start off with the first stupid thing that CNN's Chris Cuomo says. You would think we would have impaneled experts on a special commission by now to see what the science says, right? But we don't seem to have the intellectual curiosity about this issue because it's not really about science. It has become a culture war. It's a political lever to use as a distraction from policy and solving problems to allow people to get up in their religion and their righteousness over any sense of what science suggests. So there's several reasons why that was incredibly stupid. One of the ones that I think is fairly obvious is he starts out with saying, you know, you would think by this point that we would have just had a panel of experts to decide on this. That's not how the country works. We don't get panels of experts to just decide things. We elect people and then they make decisions based on the consent of the governed. That's how this is supposed to work. I don't know why this is a difficult concept for Chris Cuomo to understand, but that's the way that our country has run for a very, very long time. I don't know what it is about the left, but they have this weird fetish with trusting the experts. Now, experts are important. I like having people with expertise and taking in their advice, and, and I've always been an advocate for doing your own homework and listening to people that have some expertise. But I'm also a fan of listening to experts that have the opposite opinion of the experts you just looked at which is something that Chris Cuomo does not like. Because we've seen it over and over again. When people on the left say, trust the experts, they mean our experts. You know, they say, trust the experts on global warming. Here's a high school senior with mental disabilities and a guy who used to run a science show for kids on PBS. That's their experts. And so when they say trust the experts, what they actually mean is people that we agree with. That's, that seems to be the only qualifying factor there. But uh, he says that there's no intellectual curiosity at all, which to be honest, I agree with. There is no intellectual curiosity at all. The left just is not interested in seeing anything that might challenge their opinion that the human baby with its own unique human DNA, its own unique human heartbeat, that that might actually be a person and, and not you know, a Siberian Husky or a water buffalo, that it is indeed a human being with its own unique DNA, its own unique blood type in many cases. It has a blood type distinct from the mother, that this is a living human living within in the mother. They don't like anything that does that. Think about this. They are always, and they come out consistently against laws that require a woman to get an ultrasound or to have a waiting period between when she goes in to try to get the abortion and when the abortion actually takes place. They're always against those laws. Well, if you were for the science, then why would you be against a law that says a woman has to look at a medical scan of the baby growing inside of her? The reason is because studies have shown over and over and over and over again 
that women that actually see their babies inside their body before they get an abortion, there's very little chance that they actually get an abortion. The most effective thing that you can do to stop abortions, as long as abortions are still legal, of course, is to just show them the ultrasound of their baby. If you do that, four out of five women, based on the, the stats that we've seen, don't get abortions. And they know that, which is the reason that they are against these laws. But it's all about the science. But don't you dare actually show them any information done by doctors to help inform their decision. See, the thing is, they don't want the science if they think the science will lead to something that they disagree with. The state of California, for example, tried to shut down crisis pregnancy centers. You remember this was a big Supreme Court case about two years ago where the Supreme Court ruled in overwhelming fashion, you can't compel these crisis pregnancy centers to peddle abortion. You can't make them say, hey, here's a, a brochure for abortion. You should go get an abortion. You can't make them say that. These crisis pregnancy centers, which were centers run by nurses and doctors and other people that are professionals in the field, uh, they were like, no, no, we don't want that. We don't want women getting information that might suggest that they don't get an abortion. And they actually tried to shut these places down because, again, it's not about the science. It's about their politics. And what's funny about this is you would think, you would think of all people that Chris Cuomo would understand this, right? Because the man's own brother, the governor of New York, signed into law a bill that stripped the unborn of all protections. All of them. Like, for example, if, if you're a pregnant woman driving in a car and a drunk driver hits you and causes you to lose your baby, you can sue him for damages to your car, you can sue him for injuries you sustained, but the loss of the baby is just nothing. They treat it like the baby never existed. If uh, there was actually a case of this a few years ago where a man specifically slipped abortion medication into his girlfriend's drink because he didn't want her to have a baby, and there was no legal recourse for her because they had already taken away all of the protections for the unborn. That's how radical these people are. And that's Chris Cuomo's brother. And he's sitting here pretending like, oh, we're just following the science. No, nothing you're talking about is scientific. And they usually, this is true in Chris Cuomo's case, it's true in Andrew Cuomo's case, they refuse to tell you at what point the baby is actually a person. Because if they gave you some kind of medical definition, there is no medical definition in the world that exists for what constitutes a human being that does not also apply to a baby living in the womb. Because they know if they made one, then they would have to figure out some kind of way to exclude other groups. For example, if you made an argument for a level of development, you would have to argue that people that are, haven't gone through puberty are not really people. And that somehow being an adult is what really makes you a human being. And so because they don't do that, they never talk about what actually makes a person a person. Because that would involve a lot of science. And because of that, they know the science would not agree with them, so they ignore it or pretend like it doesn't exist. And he also talks about their, it's like people can get up in their religion. There are a lot of people that do support abortion on grounds of religion, but there's also a lot of people that don't. One of the candidates for the libertarian president back in the 2016 election was a guy named Austin Peterson. The man is an atheist, doesn't believe in God at all, and is still pro-life. 
which by the way is the strangest thing I've ever seen out of a politician. He's a libertarian who typically like abortion. I would say that it's, it's closer to 50-50, but the point is there's a lot of libertarians that like abortion. He's a libertarian atheist that's pro-life. That, that's a very odd combination, but I mean, I, I respect him. He was one of the ones that I voted for in the prior, or that I would have voted for in the, the presidential race. If given the opportunity, I would have loved for him to have been president. But anyway, I digress on that. Ultimately, he, he tries to act like, and they, the left always does this, they try to paint this uh, caricature of somebody that only supports protecting children from abortion from being killed because of their religion. But that's simply not the case. I, I can give you, if I guarantee you, if I became an atheist tomorrow, and that is unlikely, because uh, not going to happen to me, but if I stopped believing in God for whatever reason, I would still be pro-life because I still believe in the ideas of life, liberty, and property the three primordial rights. That has nothing to do with my religion. Now, I also think that we should support babies because of religion, but even if my religion vanished tomorrow, I would still support it just on the grounds that I just laid out there. But Chris Cuomo continues on. Though medical capabilities may be moving the point of viability well short of what it was assumed to be in 1973 with Roe v. Wade. So you'd think some of the proponents of harsher measures would want the science involved. Now, this is arguably the only thing that he says that does make some sense. Although I would point out that viability was not the standard when it came to Roe v. Wade. So Chris Cuomo is just an idiot when it comes to law. This is not a scientific argument, but viability didn't become the standard until the case of Casey versus Planned Parenthood. That wasn't the standard when Roe v. Wade came out, and so he's completely mis like he's he's completely botching the legal analysis that he's trying to do there. But second of all, and this is the more important thing, he is making a point that actually I agree with. That the only problem is by making that point, he is insinuating that we aren't already doing that. I know a lot of pro-life activists, and I know a lot of conservatives. And just about everyone I've ever spoken to has made the exact argument that Chris Cuomo just made. And it's because they do believe the science, they do trust the science, and they say, look, if we're going to make viability the standard, well, viability is a moving target. Are children that happen to live next door to the Mayo Clinic significantly more valuable as people than people that are living out in rural Nevada? I would say no, a person is a person and their value is inherent. But if your standard is viability, you are saying that that child is more important. Let's use an argument that the left often makes that, that every person is important. Is a baby in Mexico just not that important because their medical science hasn't caught up to ours and because of that they don't have a lot of facilities that could keep a baby alive in Mexico? Does that just mean Mexican babies just aren't people? When exactly the same baby at exactly the same uh, part of the gestation period, if they were living in New York City, that baby would be viable? Because if that's the standard that we're using, that's a moving target, guys. And then you would have to assert that people are basically more people if they're richer or if they live in a rich country. And so if we make viability the standard, then that's not a standard that is based on the inherent qualities that make a person a person. And furthermore, when did we make survivability a qualification for being a person? 
That doesn't make any sense to me at all. There are people that depend on an iron lung. They're still human beings. There are people that are diabetic and have to have insulin. Do we say that those people are not as much people as people that don't need insulin to live? Because that's the argument that you're making. Those people are more viable. So do they have more human rights than people that, that don't need those things? And some people are hooked up to machines. Some people just have a level of dependency because they're mentally incapable. They need people to take care of them. There are elderly people that need to be in nursing homes or in some kind of facility or, or be taken care of by family members because they're incapable of doing it themselves. If we're making the ability to survive the standard, then you wind up with something, and I'm not saying that this is what Chris Cuomo advocates for, I'm just saying if you follow his logic down that trail, you end up with places like Nazism where everything was based on the survival of the fittest. Adolf Hitler was a Darwinist, and he believed that the reason that he was rooting out the Jews and the other undesirables was because he was trying to create a master race that was more suited to survive. Now, again, I'm not saying that Chris Cuomo is there. I don't think that Chris Cuomo is a Nazi, but I'm saying the logic he is applying here could be applied exactly the same way and eventually get you to Naziville. Now, maybe some people could make the argument that, that you know, having this one little piece of Nazi ideology is all right, but I, I just tend to say that's a bad road to go down regardless. But anyway, Chris Cuomo continues on in this segment. Most Americans want the court to uphold Roe v. Wade, which found women have liberty over their own body as a right to privacy, a privacy right under the 14th Amendment. 62 uphold, 24 overturn. Now, everything that Chris Cuomo just said is accurate, but here's the thing. It's the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is not supposed to be affected by public opinion. That's the reason they're the Supreme Court. That's the reason that we do not elect our Supreme Court judges. They are, you know, affected in some way by the voting process because they are confirmed by the Senate and appointed by the president, which, of course, are elected. But they're not elected because the founders specifically wanted to keep them as far away from being swayed by public opinion as humanly possible. So, yes, it is true that there are a lot of people in America, I think incorrectly, and of course, I would not fit into that category, that do want the court to uphold abortion as being the law of the land. But just because a majority approves of it doesn't mean it's the right thing. And more importantly, when it comes to the Supreme Court, they're supposed to not care about that. They're supposed to be the branch that is apolitical, that is not supposed to be engaged in looking at public opinion polls and making decisions based off of those things. Part of the reasons I'm so incredibly critical of Judge Roberts is because that seems to be the only thing that he cares about as the Chief Justice. And so, because of that, this shouldn't matter at all. Now, a public opinion poll does make a little more difference if you're talking about something that's working its way through the House and the Senate, because people directly elect their representatives, and so, you know, that, that does somewhat uh, give some insight into what the constituents of those people would want. But the Supreme Court doesn't function that way, and it's not supposed to. It's specifically as removed as possible from politics and, and naturally being affected by public opinion polls. And so what Andrew Cuomo is saying is true, but it's irrelevant. And another thing that's important, too, most Americans probably wanted the court to uphold horrible decisions 
in the past, like Brown v. Board of Education and the Dred Scott case. There was probably a majority of Americans that wanted to uphold it. That didn't make it right, guys. And if we're going by public opinion, remember that in 2004, 60% of Americans opposed gay marriage. Now, that had moved somewhat since Obergefell, since the Supreme Court came out in, I believe that was 2015, where they essentially said that no, gay marriage should be instituted across all 50 states as the law of the land. But at the time, it wasn't. So if all of our moral decisions are going to be made off of what is popular at the time, was it just morally incorrect for people to get married if they were gay back in 2004? I'm sure Chris Cuomo would say no. But if that's the case, then why was it, if, if that's the standard that you're using, then that's going to be something that is constantly moving and shifting. You can't use public opinion as your way to make decisions, especially when you're talking about Supreme Court cases, because they're supposed to be the ones that are removed from that. So let's go ahead and look at the final piece. And this is the, the piece that most of the conservative shows I've seen today are, are playing. So let's just watch this. But again, it's not about science or consensus. It's about dividing lines, legislating to the far right, white fright vote, flooding the zone with 536 bills that abridge a woman's right to control her own body in 46 states. It's just like voting rights in one way. You see, it seems like the far right only cares about protecting humans before they are born. Did anybody catch that in the last line that he just said? He says, it seems like the right only cares about protecting humans before they're born. So you're admitting that it's a human. That's what you said. Chris Cuomo on air just contradicted himself. He said, it's a human. Well, if it's a human, shouldn't you want to preserve it too? If it's a human life, and again, he used the word life, he said human lives, then why are you against protecting it? I thought that we were all supposed to be supportive of protecting human life. Now, I don't agree with this premise, but I'm not going to go into it because I just did last week a segment where AOC made exactly the same claim. So if you're interested in looking at the, oh, conservatives only care about lives in the womb. If you're, cons if you're interested in watching that, I do recommend watching my video on AOC because she delved into that a little bit. So I went in detail. But on the other thing, the, the core of what he's trying to get at here is that black women are, <laughs> he's saying that it has something to do with race, despite the fact that black women, they get abortions at five times the rate of white women. So he's trying to make this into, oh, they're just trying to divide us against racial lines. Oh, really? The, the party that supports Black Lives Matter, they're the ones, we're the ones doing the division across racial lines. That That's the play you want to run with. All right. But then the second part of that is equally stupid. He's saying that abortion is a racial issue, which I actually agree with, but not the way that he's talking about. If black women are getting abortions at five times the rate of white women, then would not that mean that the white people that are supporting getting rid of abortion would be the exact opposite of racist? Because we're wanting there to be a world with more black children in it. A good example of this, you can check this out. This is from Congress.gov in a report that was issued to Congress. 
Disproportionately, the leading consumer of abortion services is the African-American female, According to the 2011 abortion surveillance report issued by the Center for Disease Control, black women make up 14% of the childbearing population, yet obtain 36.2% of the reported abortions. Black women have the highest abortion ratio in the country, with 474 abortions per 1,000 live births. That means that if you are a black baby in the womb, you've got about a little less than a 30% chance of being aborted versus being born. He continues on, Percentages at these levels illustrate that more than 19 million black babies have been aborted since 1973. So, think about this for a second, guys. Chris Cuomo is saying that the reason that people want Roe overturned is because they're racist and they hate black people. You're appealing to the white fright vote. Except the people that are for getting rid of abortion would actually wind up creating a world with more black people in it. How does that make any sense? I'm just as ardent about protecting those black babies as I am the white babies that we have lost to abortion. And to illustrate this, check this out. This is from the census, and I did a little bit of the number crunching myself. The CDC is the one that put out the information on abortion, so you'll see there the current U.S. population is 76% white, 13.4% black, and 10.2% other. Yet, if you're looking at abortions, 32%, that's the stat that we just looked at from the CDC, of those abortions are black people. Only 43% of them are white people, so not even half. Think about that. Not even half of the women that are getting abortions are white. And so, if we instituted this, this is what the American population would look like. I crunched the numbers and added the numbers to all of the figures since 1973. And if abortion were done away with, if, if we never had abortion, and Roe didn't exist, and, and all of the babies that have been sacrificed to the God of convenience had been saved we would currently be looking at a population that is only 71% white, 16% black, and 12% other. So somehow, all of the evil racists that want abortion to go away, if our worldview was put into place, we would have an America where there are less white people and more other people. How does that make any sense? And by the way, this is also true when you're looking at the approval by black people. If this is such a racist thing, yeah, uh, hang on, I, I don't know why that's... Huh. Sorry, I'm having some issues here. I apologize. I don't know what happened there. My graphics just went crazy. But anyway, um, one of the things that I, I wanted to display there is that if you're looking at the statistics for black Americans and their approval of abortion, there is a large percentage of them that do not agree with abortion. Now, if you're looking at the areas of 17, uh, 2017, to th to 2017 to 2020, you will see that there has been a substantial increase in the amount of black people that do believe 
that abortion is a moral choice. In other words, that you uh, th that abortion is something that you can do that is morally correct. But that's only about 40, that's just a little over 40% of the black population, which means there is still a majority of black people, despite being overwhelmingly Democrats, despite in all of major national elections, voting 90% with the Democrats, still over half of black people don't agree with abortion, don't think it's right. This is the dirty little secret that people on the left don't want you to talk about. Even though black people, by and large, vote for Democrats, they vehemently disagree with their stance on abortion. It's one of the big sticking points between blacks and the Democrat Party. And so somehow, I guess all of the black people that disagree with abortion, they must be racist against black people too somehow because that's appealing to the white fright vote game. This is utterly stupid, and Chris Cuomo, in his usual fashion, gets all of his facts wrong. And another thing that I want to point out that's interesting is how is it that if getting rid of abortion and wanting abortion to be ended is racist, why is it that it seems that all the actual racists like abortion? That just seems bizarre. For example, you know who was uber pro-abortion? The founder of Planned Parenthood. You know who else really didn't like black people? the founder of Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger. I mean, I've gone through this laundry list of things that she's done over and over again. I put up dozens of quotes about how she thinks that black people are terrible and shouldn't be allowed to reproduce and all this other stuff. She actually put out a campaign that she was going to pay black ministers to go into black communities and try to emphasize sterilization and abortions. She talks about them as human weeds. I could go on and on and on about this. But the point is, Margaret Sanger, really didn't like black people. She also worked with the Klan and the neo-Nazis. Well, actually, back then they were just the Nazis, but <laughs> the Nazis here in America. You see, she was a fan of eugenics. And the Democrat Party, which is closely associated with the Klan, they were big fans of her because of that. She wanted less black people to be born so that the country could be more white. She was trying to create a thoroughbred when it comes to, you know, engineering human genetics. She believed that black people were inferior and because of that needed to be weeded out of the population. And by the way, it would be one thing if, because I know that they try to make the case, oh, well, that, that was way in the past, and that's back then when, you know, the Democrats were all about Jim Crow. Now it's, now it's completely different. No, the racists are still pretty dang pro-abortion. Let's look at this quote, which is from uh, Richard Spencer, who is one of the leaders of the alt-right. So this is a, a quote by him where he's talking about abortion and why he supports it. Now remember, alt-right, uber-racist. They're white nationalists. And he says, and so the anti-abortion crusade becomes this human rights crusade. And if you were to look at the writing of people like Ramesh Panuro of National Review, it is directly associated with this, that every being is a human and has a right to live, right to life, and so on. Well, that's not how we think as identitarians, to be honest. You are a part of a community. You're a part of a family. You're a part of a collective. You do not have some human right, some abstract thing to give to you by God or by the world or something like that. You're a part of a community, and that's where you gain your meaning or your rights. 
The anti-abortion crusade is often associated with family, the traditional family, but to be honest, it's descended into not just a just a human rights dogma, but a kind of dysgenic we are the world dogma. That's pretty clear. Richard Spencer, probably the most famous racist in the country, very pro-abortion. And the reason that he is pro-abortion is because he says, look, your value doesn't come from God. It doesn't come from individual rights. It, it's not something that is ingrained to you. Your rights come from your community. Well, that sounds just like Black Lives Matter. That sounds just like all of the talking points of the left. Because they engage in tribalism and, and tribalistic identitarian politics, just like the alt-right does. And by the way, he's not the only one in the alt-right that believes this. This is a quote from Alma uh, Fisher. And again, this is another alt-right personality on abortion. Quote, it is important that we not fall prey to the pro-life temptation. The only ones who can't avoid an unwanted pregnancy are the least intelligent and responsible members of society. Women who are disproportionately black, Hispanic, and poor. Now this one's even more telling, because Fisher here is arguing that no, we don't need to fall prey to the temptation to be pro-life. Why? Because most of the people getting abortions are a bunch of unintelligent black and Hispanic people, and we want them to get abortions. This is what I'm saying, and, and you can draw a contrast, it is clear as crystal. Chris Cuomo is trying to say, oh, well, it must be a racial thing is the reason that they want Roe overturned. Uh, no, I want to save the black babies that are getting aborted just as much as the white babies, and the Hispanic babies and everybody else. They're all important to me. I want zero babies to be lost to abortion. The world that Chris Cuomo, and weirdly enough, they're on the same page in this one, the alt-right is advocating for is a world that is more white. That's the irony in all this. In Caleb Cockwit's perfect world where there is no abortion, black people are a significantly larger part of the American population than they are now. Look, if you have to point to a side that's racist, it's just probably not the group of people that want 19 million more black people in the world. That's probably not the group that's racist if you're having to pick sides here. Just a general rule of thumb. I should also mention, even though we haven't dug super deep into the details, that Chris Cuomo also deserves to be in the Daily Dose of Stupid for another reason. Apparently, he was busted for advising his idiot brother, the governor of New York, the worst governor in the country, he got busted for advising him on how to handle the scandal when it came to all of the rape allegations. So, the objective journalist, Chris Cuomo, who, by the way, was doing the uh, Chris Cuomo and Andrew Cuomo comedy hour back when the pandemic was at its zenith and Andrew Cuomo oversaw literally the worst death and hospitalization rates in the world, not the country, the world. If you look at his death rates, it was worse than Italy, worse than Spain, worse than every other country that got hit hard by this thing. Andrew Cuomo oversaw it all while signing book deals, talking about how great his pandemic response was. And we find out through all of this, when news started to break about all of his sexual harassment and rape allegations, that it was his brother Chris Cuomo advising 
his panel on how to handle that scandal in the media. See, the problem with this, though, is that nobody on the left cares. Nobody on the left cares. Because they have a ends justifies means mentality. And the truth is, they don't really see objective journalism as something to be valued anyway. Because at the end of the day, they think Democrats are right and Republicans are wrong. And so a objective person would say that. In fact, the, the fact that they all these media outlets and the corporate media establishment goes around talking about how they're both objective and how all Republicans are evil racist Nazis and Democrats are going to save us from them, they think that is objective because that's how they see the world. And so the fact that Andrew Cuomo's brother was helping him in this, it really doesn't matter to anybody on the left. And then people on the right are going to see it and say, yeah, we kind of already guessed that that was probably going on. We already know the media is corrupt. We already know they don't care about being objective. We already know that they are basically just a PR arm of the Democrat Party. So this really should surprise no one. I mean, CNN already got caught with Donna Brazile giving questions to Hillary Clinton before the debates. I, you could go down the list. There was the whole thing with uh, Project Veritas and CNN talking about how they were going to shift the election in Joe Biden's way to try to get Trump out of office. I mean, we could go example after example after example. But the tragic thing about all this is even though at one point in American history, this would have been a big scandal, a journalist that works for a media company going out of his way to advise a politician on how he's supposed to handle it, that would be big news to everybody. But the truth is, it's not really news to anybody now, because everybody on the right pretty much already figured that, that was going on. We already know the media is corrupt. And everybody on the left is like, well, he should have done that because he was under assault by a bunch of evil Republicans. And so it's unfortunate and frustrating because, yes, it's wrong. But at the end of the day, it's really not going to make a difference to anybody. And I do think that that is a sad commentary on where we've gotten as a country. But for the second dose of your Daily Dose of Stupid, our Daily Dose of Stupid for today is Dr. Anthony Fauci. I haven't featured Fauci much on the Daily Dose of Stupid, even though that's probably, probably should have a little bit more, come to think of it. I have been, for a long time, I was accused of being a, a Fauci sympathizer. And the truth is, to a degree that I was. I, I kind of saw Fauci as being, you know, maybe not the best representative, but at the very least, I didn't think that he was, you know, actively a bad guy or actively trying to undermine all of this, but that started to fade pretty quickly when we started getting into the later days of this thing, and he kept calling for shutdowns even though it had been proven that they did no good. He started calling for mask wearing even though there was no science to back that up whatsoever. And now we're getting into these later days, and we're seeing Dr. Fauci do the same song and dance. Now, early on, I should have, and I apologize to my audience for this, I should have detected, and I should have been a little bit harsher on Dr. Fauci, if nothing else, this should have been the tell, that he was talking about how, uh, no, masks don't work at all, we don't need masks, you shouldn't worry about that, and then he came out and admitted, okay, well, yeah, I did say that, but the thing is, we really do need masks, I was just lying to the American people for their own good. And the reason that I was doing that is because... We really needed the people that, that need the PPEs, the you know nurses and doctors and elderly and that kind of thing. We needed them to have it, and we didn't want to sell out or, or you know exhaust our supply. 
And so that's the reason that we handled it the way that we did. I'm saying this because I kind of just overlooked that. Anytime a politician is so brazen that he admits to you that he's lying to you and says that he's doing it for your own good, that he's doing it to protect you, you should never trust that person on anything, for any reason, for the rest of their political career. That is a that is some sage advice there, and advice that I should have followed when this whole thing broke with Dr. Fauci. Well, this week he basically admitted that he's done it yet again. Now, there's several other instances we could talk about where he's admitted he was lying for the sake of protecting the American people. He did so on vaccines. He did so on some of the therapeutics um, and, and admitted to it. But he's actually doing it yet again. And for whatever reason, it just doesn't look like anybody is going to... I mean, this, this should be something that causes him to lose his job. And it doesn't. But here's Dr. Anthony Fauci explaining why he is no longer wearing the mask inside. How has it changed what you do? How has it changed your mask wearing practices? Well, you know, George, I'm obviously careful because, I mean, I'm a physician and a healthcare provider. I am now much more comfortable in, in people seeing me indoors without a mask. I mean, before the CDC made the recommendation change, I didn't want to look like I was giving mixed signals. But being a fully vaccinated person, the chances of my getting infected in an indoor setting is extremely low. I said that. And that's the reason why in indoor settings now, I feel comfortable about not wearing a mask because I'm fully I'm fully vaccinated. Yeah. Your odds of getting infected were extremely low outside since the beginning. I mean, I remember saying that back in like April, that based on all of the data, your odds of getting infected outside, practically nothing. I even criticized President Trump for wearing a mask outside. That was just stupid. And if, you know, Anthony Fauci's an older guy, he's at higher risk for the vaccine, and that means he should be a little more careful. Now, there's no evidence to suggest that the mask did anything in helping that. Uh, study after study after study shown no conclusive evidence whatsoever that the mask is actually doing anything. But Dr. Fauci is, at the very least, a medical professional that probably has had PPE training. And so there is at least a chance that maybe the kind of mask that he was wearing and the way that he was wearing it would have worked. Not happening for the average person. But the more important part of that is that here he is, yet again, coming on TV and admitting to the American people, that was all show, I was just lying to you. I was doing it not because it was effective, not because I was following the science, I was doing it because I wanted to put on a show for everyone. Conservatives have been saying this for months. The masks are not effective, they're not helping anybody, they're doing it just for show. Now in Fauci's case, at the very least, he is saying, well, I got vaccinated, and now that I've been vaccinated, there was really no need for me to ever wear a mask, but I was wearing it because I you know, wanted to put on a front for the American people. You notice that the CDC is now recommending that vaccinated people no longer have to wear the mask, but there's been no data that came in that was new. There's been no new studies done. They made this decision because of the politics of it. Joe Biden was having an awful news week, and they needed something to detract from that. 
And so what we saw is they started removing it because even some people on the left were pointing out that mask mandate doesn't make any sense. And if you want people to actually take the vaccines, you need to give them something more than, well, if you know everybody else has been vaccinated around you, you can take the mask off if you're outside. That is insanity. That made no sense at all. And I'm saying this as a layman that's just looking at the data that's coming in from the very sources that are telling me I have to wear a mask no matter what, even after being vaccinated around people that may or may not be vaccinated, I have to wear it at all times. And even against people that are vaccinated and I'm vaccinated, I still have to wear a mask when I'm inside. That made no sense. That made no sense at all. And Dr. Fauci is admitting to this and saying, well, I just, I didn't, you know, want the American people, I, I didn't want them to, to stop wearing a mask because I wasn't wearing it. First of all, a lot of these politicians vastly overestimate their influence with the American people. They do. The idea that somebody would be not wearing a mask and then see Dr. Fauci, you know, passing by the news when they're in an airport somewhere and CNN happens to be on the background and we're seeing Dr. Fauci inside wearing a mask, be like, oh gosh, maybe I should wear my mask. No, you're an, you're an idiot if you're that person. I don't think that those people actually exist. I think that there are an awful lot of people that were dedicated to wearing the mask and were going to do it whether they saw Anthony Fauci wearing it or not. And there's a whole lot of people like me that weren't, that didn't. I don't think that that made one person in our nation of 328 million people I don't think seeing Dr. Anthony Fauci inside with or without a mask made any change in what they thought of at all. And if that had happened, there's a very simple answer for Dr. Fauci. All he could say was, well, I've been vaccinated. You want to not wear a mask, get vaccinated. Now, again, I don't agree that the mask were actually doing anything anyway. But if I wanted people to get vaccinated, I wouldn't be telling people they still have to treat themselves like the bubble boy and live in a plastic cellophane <laughs> bubble for the rest of their lives until they got, even after they had been vaccinated. That doesn't make any sense. That's no motive to get the vaccine at all. But what really irks me about this is afterward, in the same interview, Dr. Fauci was, was very forward on saying, but we, guys, we also have to keep in mind, there are some people that just feel more comfortable wearing a mask even though the science doesn't support it. And because of that, we should be very tolerant and understanding of them. Now, here's the thing. In a vacuum, there's really nothing wrong with Dr. Fauci saying that, but it doesn't exist in a vacuum. What hacks me off about it is that I was told that I was wanting to murder people because I didn't wear a mask. Where was this call for tolerance and understanding then? He actually said, you know, some people have different comfort levels, and so we need to take that into consideration. Well, my comfort level was I didn't want to wear a mask. Why was that never a consideration when all of this was happening when it was the people that didn't agree with Dr. Fauci? And by the way, unfortunately, Fauci is right that even though the CDC guidelines have changed, there's still an awful lot of people that continue to want to wear the mask. Our president, our, our fearless, beloved leader, Joe Biden, actually came out with this tweet just the other day. Um, I'll, I'll try to read it in Joe Biden voice. <clears throat> uh, the rule is now simple. Get vaccinated or wear a mask until you do. Come on, man. 
choice is yours. That is true. Pudding. Okay. Now, yes, that is incredibly authoritarian and tyrannical. And yes, we live in a country where, thankfully, Joe Biden doesn't get to make the rules because he's the president, not the king. And I would say that if Trump had said the exact same thing. In fact, I was pretty critical of a lot of Trump's tweets. But ultimately, the thing that was really surprising about that was not the tweet. The thing that I found more interesting is if you scroll through the responses to that tweet, it was filled with, yes, a lot of people like me saying, no, screw off. You're the president. You don't get to tell me what to do. There were a lot of that. But there was also a lot of Democrats saying, well, I, I just don't want people to think that I'm a Republican. Rachel Maddow actually came out on her program on MSNBC and basically said exactly the same thing. All this points to the same thing. Not only was it leaders like Biden and Fauci that are now, despite there being no new data to suggest that it's any safer now than it was a couple weeks ago, you've not only got those guys that are basically admitting, yeah, it was all a show and, and we didn't really mean any of it. Even the layman, the guy that's just walking down the street that has his Joe Biden sticker on his Suburban and uh, just driving around in the car with his mask on and a, one of those big plastic screens over his face like Darth Vader. That's actually not a really good example because Darth Vader doesn't do it. Like an astronaut, you know what I'm saying. Uh, even that guy is saying, no, it was a virtue signal. It was just for show. I just, I don't want people to think I'm a Republican. And so I'm going to keep wearing the mask. And I don't know how many people in the comments were also saying, but I don't know who else has been vaccinated. And there's probably a lot of these Republicans out there that haven't been vaccinated that aren't wearing a mask. Yeah. Here's the thing. You're vaccinated moron. It doesn't matter whether they're vaccinated or not, because you've been vaccinated. One of the more interesting things that has come out of this pandemic is this notion, and I don't know how much the pandemic created it. I think most of it was kind of already there, but because the whole mask thing was, well, you're not actually masking for yourself. You're really masking for everybody else. People now feel justified in believing that a person engaging in normal behavior, just like walking down the street without a mask, is somehow out to get them. It's made them skeptical of us. It has caused us to divide ourselves into camps, almost like color gangs. You know, the right, a lot of people, now see people wearing a mask as the enemy. And the opposite is also true for the people that are wearing masks that see people without masks. They see it as being a part of their team. As I said from the beginning, the mask or a religious totem. It's not about science. It's not even about precaution. It was always about showing solidarity and that you're part of the special club. It's just like when a Catholic wears their rosary. It's just like when, you know, you have all the other kind of Wiccans will wear the like pentagram thing. Uh, when Protestants or other Christians just wear a cross around their neck or a, a what would Jesus do bracelet. That's all it is. It is showing that you're on that team. And there's nothing inherently wrong with any of those religious emblems. Don't misunderstand me on that. I'm just saying that that's ultimately what it's about. It's not that the mask was actually doing anything for them. It's trying to show that they are, you know, of a particular ideological mind. 
And the thing is, we've always been pretty divided on politics. Back in the day, you actually had to have a conversation with somebody to figure out whether or not you were on their team or against their team per se. The problem now is we literally just have to look at the person's face. It's as plain as the nose on their face. We can see somebody and pretty much assume that they're of a particular political bend or not. I'm not saying it's 100%. But because of that, we have created this weird dividing stigma in our minds where we can divide up where a person stands politically just based on whether or not they wear the mask or not. And this is a bad thing. And, and I'm not saying this, you know, necessarily because, well, I guess I am saying I, I don't like the fact that it's been so closely associated with leftism, but this is a bad thing for the country, whether or not I agree with the person. I shouldn't see that because then I start making assumptions about that person beforehand. And the other person starts making assumptions about me. And it makes us less likely to be able to connect on things that don't have anything to do with politics. It's hard to have a united country when half the country sees the other country as wanting to destroy them and not care about them. And that this can all be done and, and done in a second's notice. You don't even have to talk to the person to find out if they're on your team or not. That is not a good place for the country to be. And it does worry me. But this does show that it was all about show. All Anthony Fauci was doing was trying to signal to people and basically signal to everybody that didn't show the same signal as he did that they were bad people. And the way that they've divided this country is incredibly disappointing to me. The, the way that we've been so easily divided and duped by this is something that I'm, I'm very, very worried about. It would be one thing if Fauci were the kind of politician, and he is a politician, if he were the kind of politician that would come out and be like, you know what, I was wrong on that, and I, I guess, you know, we've just seen more science, and it turns out I, he doesn't do that. Have you ever heard Dr. Fauci say that he was wrong or that he was misled or, or mistaken in any way? You haven't. And so what Fauci does do is he comes out and says, yeah, I was wrong. I lied to you for your own good. You're welcome. That's the most depraved kind of tyrant that you can have. Somebody that admits to lying that says, it's because I know better than you. I'm just superior to you. You're an idiot. And because you don't know how to make your own decisions, I had to do this for your sake. As C.S. Lewis once aptly pointed out, the worst kind of tyrant is the one that does it for the other person's own good. A robber baron, you know, occasionally he might feel like he's got enough or his greed might at least temporarily be slated. But the person that is just being tyrannical for the you know, the good of the person that he is tyrannizing over, they're never going to leave you alone. And that was C.S. Lewis's point, and I think that we've seen that with Dr. Fauci. That being said, let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, 
Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Today's Chaplain Report is going to be a little bit different because I typically, even when I do integrate politics with the Chaplain's Report and talk about a political issue and, and describe how the Bible speaks to that, I do it in a less direct way. This one, I'm just going straight for the politics. And the reason for that is because this is something that is timely that the Bible actually does have something to say about. And it's primarily because I see a lot of Christians in error. And I'm doing this lovingly and, and just wanting to correct a mistake. But it is an error. And I think it's one that does need to be pointed out. So bringing this up, I want you to know before we sort of depart on this journey, I want you to know up front, I support Israel. I think Israel has a right to defend itself when any country, regardless of who they are, launches a whole bunch of rockets on a populated city trying to indiscriminately kill people. Then yes, you absolutely have a right to deploy rockets to defend yourself and to take out the people trying to kill you. That is part of self-defense. So I do support Israel, and I think that they're in the right. I think there's no moral equivalency between them and the Palestinians whatsoever. A lot of people have tried to point out, yeah, well, the the uh, Israel's government tried to evict a bunch of Palestinians. Okay, that's a much more complicated case than they're giving it credit for. The Supreme Court there in Israel has been going back and forth on this for a while now. This is a literally a decades-old case that they're trying to sort of sort out. But, okay, let's say that they did. Having a couple of families evicted from their houses may or may not be wrong, but it's certainly not worth firing thousands of rockets into a, a populated area of people that had nothing to do with that. And so there, there's an issue drawing some moral equivalency there. However, the error that I told you about that I think a lot of Christians find themselves in is they try to make the case that they are supporting Israel because of their religious affiliation, that because I'm a Christian, I'm obligated to defend Israel. That's incorrect. I'm sorry, but it's, it's simply not correct. Now, again, I think Israel's right on this, but not because they're Israel. I think they're right because they're doing the right thing. And so there are a few verses that I'd like to bring to your attention to think about this, because the thing that is important to understand about the New Testament is that Christians do not have a special allegiance to Israel anymore. We do come out of the same Judeo-Christian tradition, and there are some similarities that come from that, but we don't have any special allegiance to Israel as a nation or as a people. I mean, the book of Galatians talks about how there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, for all are one in Christ Jesus. The only thing that we're concerned about is, are you in the kingdom or are you not in the kingdom? We shouldn't be making decisions based on whether or not you know, we should side with Israel because they're Israel. Israel was a very important place, and they are the keepers of the covenant of Moses back in the day. They're not now. They no longer have a special relationship with God. And this is something that the scripture points to over and over again. Let's look first. Okay. Um, again, not sure what's going on with my computer. But I'm just going to go ahead and read the verses to you. 
Uh, we'll look first at John 4, verses 21 through 23, which says, Jesus said unto her, talking to the woman at the well here, Believe me, woman, that a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews. But a time is coming, and even now has arrived, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. All right, now I want you to think about this and, and concentrate on this. Jesus is talking to a woman who is asking him a question about where it is correct to worship. And Jesus is saying, okay, under the old law, yeah, Jerusalem, salvation is from the Jews. But a time is coming and has arrived. He's talking about the kingdom that he is about to establish. A time is coming where you will not worship on this mountain or that mountain, but in spirit and in truth. And so this is an important distinction that Jesus is bringing up. He's saying, there was a time where it was very important that you worship in Jerusalem, but that's going away now. The only thing that's going to matter is, because God is a spirit, that you are worshiping him in spirit and in truth. The location is not important anymore. So Jerusalem, as a location, is not significant to the Christian. It is completely irrelevant. Jesus points this out very emphatically in John chapter 4. Now, Let's look at the covenant as well. And this one comes from Hebrews 8, 10 through 13, where he says, For this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they will not teach each one his fellow citizen and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful toward their wrongdoings, and their sins I will no longer remember. When he said, A new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is about to disappear. So this is really important because Hebrews is kind of the link between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It, it sets up this dichotomy of the old law and the new law and shows how the new law is not an abolishment of the old law, but it is bringing it to full fruition. But an important thing to note in this verse is it says that the old one is obsolete because the new one was the fulfillment of the old, which means the old one is no longer in effect. He's saying, you know, the, the old law had flaws, and it was not perfect in the sense that it did not have the ability to save because it didn't have the human sacrifice of God coming to man and being sacrificed and having his blood forgive the forgive uh, his blood to wash away the sins and forgive his followers. The new covenant does, and the new one is better. Therefore, the old one is put away. It is obsolete. It is no longer in effect because God has made a new deal with his people. And every time that God makes a new covenant with his people, the old one goes away. And you can see this throughout the scripture. This is not the only time where God renegotiates his deal with humanity. It happens with Abraham. And it happens with Adam. It happens with Noah. And then when he finally gets to Moses, when the giving of the law happens, he makes a covenant with Israel, if you will follow me, I will be your God, and I will take care of you, and I will bless you as a nation. Now, Israel didn't always live up to that, 
But the point is, that was the covenant that was made with them in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. But what this Hebrew writer is saying is that once the new covenant is established, the old one isn't in effect anymore. This was also true for the Noahic covenant when Abraham came around. And it was also true for the Abrahamic covenant when the old covenant, the law of Moses, was put into place. Once that happened, the old covenant, it's gone. It's obsolete. It's no longer in effect. And so because of that, we've already looked at how the location, the physical location of Jerusalem is not important to a Christian. Now we're seeing that the old covenant is also not important to a Christian. Now, it may be important for what Paul described in Galatians as a tutor, for our understanding, for helping us to learn God's nature. But as far as actually being bound by it, the Hebrew writer is saying that's not a thing anymore. We have a new covenant, and we don't need the old one. And so, as both a, a nation and as the covenant that was made with God to Israel, those things are gone now. And then he talks about in Jesus when he's being questioned by Pilate in Jesus uh, in in John eighteen thirty six Jesus is saying, and Jesus answered, "My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm." The reason that this is so important to understand is because Jesus is making a declaration to Pilate here that my kingdom doesn't exist on this plane of existence. If it did, I would be a king, I would have armies, and that's how Pilate was thinking because he was asking, well, are you a king? Are you really the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds, he says, I am a king, but my kingdom doesn't exist the way that you think about a kingdom. It's not that I'm the king of the Jews, because, again, Pilate was kind of mocking him for the fact that his own people delivered him to him. He says, it's not that I'm the king of the Jews, it's that I'm the king of the kingdom of God. This is different. Now, Jesus was king of the Jews in a sense, because he is of the Jewish lineage, he is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with David. He is a, a the ultimate fulfillment of the, the lineage of David. But he's not a physical king the way that David was, or Saul, or Solomon, or any of the other kings of Israel. He's a spiritual king of a spiritual kingdom. And that's why he says, my kingdom's not of this world. And so Jerusalem is not the kingdom of Jesus. It's just not. Now, he is the king of Jerusalem in the same sense that he is the king of every other nation on the planet, because he is the king of all. But he is not specifically the king of Jerusalem. And so because of that, Christians really have absolutely no reason to look at the Scripture and believe that it obligates them to side with Israel. Except in one way. The fact that, and this is kind of the reason that I support Israel, even though I don't have a religious reason to, I do have a religious reason to in this limited sense. I do believe that God obligates us to defend those who are doing what's right, and to call out evil when we see it. Hamas is an evil terrorist organization that wants to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Israel does have some animosity towards them, which is understandable. And I'm not saying Israel always does everything right, and if the roles were reversed and Israel was just killing random people for no reason, yeah, I would condemn Israel for doing that, and I have condemned Israel 
for doing things that I thought were sometimes a little bit heavy-handed, but it does not seem that they have done that at all in this conflict. I mean, if anything, I think they've been a little too restrained. I do have a moral obligation that does come from my faith to support those that are doing the right thing and are just trying to defend themselves. And in this case, that is Israel. So while I don't have a reason to support Israel because they are Israel, I do have an obligation to support Israel because they're right. Stay the course, friends. Thank you for listening to the Tactics Podcast. Tactics is a production of Not Ashamed Media. Any opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our business partners or sponsors. Graphics by Jessica Dawson. Video production by Jackson Dean. Broadcast studio provided by Faulkner University. Location studio provided by Delreda Church of Christ. Copyright 2021.